right, welcome in everybody. Episode 60 of Four Score the Podcast. Andrew May alongside Rob Jufre with you. We have a special guest on the program again tonight. Bruce Shine is going to be joining us as he's going to be doing regularly moving forward. We'll have Brucey on in about 45 minutes or so. We'll talk about some baseball, some football-related topics with him. Uh, but we have a lot of stuff to get into tonight, particularly when it comes to baseball. The Mets have just been ravaged by injuries, and the same thing with the Yankees. But, you know, both teams, for the most part, are, are keeping their head above water uh, in the interim. So we'll break down some of those things and we'll talk about the football as well. When it comes to the Jets and Giants, the NFL schedule was released last week. So we have an outlook as far as strength of schedule, as far as primetime games, home, away, all that good stuff. We have it locked down. So we'll get into that stuff a little bit later on. Uh, We have some Knicks to discuss because, yes, as we sit here on May 18th, the New York Knicks are the four seed in the NBA playoffs and the schedule for that first round of the playoffs was released. The Knicks will kickstart their first series against the Atlanta Hawks in game one will be on Sunday. So, excuse me. So we'll get into that whole entire matchup and uh, how we think the Knicks will fare against a team like the Hawks. And, and before we get into the basketball, just at the surface, I mean, I think that's a pretty good matchup for the Knicks. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk all about that. But we'll get things started with the Rangers. And, and Rob and I just started talking about it off the air. And I posed Rob the question when we were recording last Tuesday night. I said, by this time next week, uh, will the New York Rangers have themselves a head coaching vacancy? And Rob was of the belief that, yes, they would. I was right in the same ballpark as he was. And now as we sit here a week later, the Rangers do have a head coaching vacancy. They decided to let go David Quinn, and now they're searching for a new head coach. So that's where we'll start things off tonight. And look, we've spoken on this podcast time and time again about the shortcomings of the Rangers season. Uh, did we think it was to the extent where they needed a front office overhaul? Uh, no, we didn't. But the naked eye would tell you that this team did underachieve this season, and a lot of that had to do with, with David Quinn. There were constant constant reminders that he is not the right coach to be developing a team that has the lowest average age in the entire NHL guys like Capo Caco, not getting the enough ice time to properly develop guys like Alexi Lafreniere, who started to play on the first line towards the end of the season. And you actually saw an uptick in his production, but in the beginning stages, you were not seeing enough of your number one overall draft pick, even at the end of the season. I mean, they fall out of playoff contention. They bring up Vitaly Kraftsov, their first round pick from a couple seasons ago. And, you know, for the most part, his first five, six games, he's buried on the fourth line with guys like Brett Howden. And that's not going to do anything as far as developing this young talent. It didn't seem like he was going to be the coach of the future. Chris Jury recognized that. And now they're searching for a new head coach. So there's been a lot of names that have been out there as, as, as rumored candidates. We already have confirmation that the Rangers are interviewing uh, Gerard Gallant. And they are going to be interviewing Rick Tockett, former head coach of the Arizona Coyotes. He was also an assistant with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, won a Stanley Cup with them as their assistant coach. And listen, at the surface, Rob, I mean, Gallant, we've spoken about how I think that he could be a fit on this team, particularly because they're young and they don't have that playoff experience. And we saw what he was able to do a few years ago with the Vegas Golden Knights, taking them to a Stanley Cup final in their first year of existence. But there's just something about Gallant's head coaching stops that just seem very brief to me. And I can't quite put my finger on what exactly it is that makes all these tenures in different places such a short-lived experience. 
So there has to be some stuff going on behind the scenes there that we maybe don't know about. There's no doubting the success he's had at the NHL level, but that's a red flag to me. A guy like Rick Tockett, again, he, he hasn't enjoyed a ton of success as an NHL head coach, so that's a red flag for me too. But if there's one thing you know he's going to bring this team, that's a tough guy mentality. I mean, all you need to do is do a quick Google search of Rick Tockett's name, and you'll see him fighting the Bob Proberts and the Scott Stevens of the world when he was a former player. This is a guy who comes with the pedigree of, of having that grit and toughness, which is something that this Rangers team really lacked the last couple seasons. And it, and it was something that we both acknowledged needed to be something that was addressed primarily this offseason. So uh, as far as the direction that you think that they should go, do you have any, any different feelings on the matter than what I just said about, about Gallant and, and Tockett? Well, I've been, I've been preaching to you pretty much half the season that uh, I want a Gallant in here. And Gallant, look, he, he, in Florida, there was a cu- couple of questionable trades that were made when he was coaching there um, that kind of took away a little bit of talent from them. And then, you know, you, you look at the Vegas team, and they brought in a new general manager there that all it took was one four-game losing streak, and Gallant was gone. But he was successful with both those teams. Um, now, the weird thing is, you know, Chris Drury is the guy that – is supposedly going to introduce the Rangers to more of an analytics part of the game, which we hate. We know that. And Gerard Gallant is far from that. Gerard Gallant, your typical old school coach. He doesn't want to deal with analytics. You know, so look, he's going to be a little bit ornery with the media. He's not going to be media friendly, but he's a winning coach. And I think he's the type of guy that's, he's a, he's an NHL coach. He's an NHL coach that has had success. He took an expansion team to the Stanley Cup. So, you know, we cannot forget that. Now, look. And and I I think the Rangers are at a stage here in this rebuild, and, and this can't be understated in any sense of the word. The Rangers are at a stage in this rebuild where. Was it a bit of a quick trigger to maybe move on from Davidson and Gorton? Yes. I mean, we didn't expect them to win a Stanley Cup, but we've both been saying this for a couple of couple of months now, Rob. You can't always be in this rebuild process. At a certain point, you need to see results. And I think they're at a stage now where they can't afford to be experimenting with a head coach. They need a bona fide coach that has a winning pedigree because they can't get this wrong because this whole entire teardown will be for nothing if that's the case. Okay, so let's look at it this way. Look at Gordon and Davidson, okay? I mean, I'm not going to dismiss what they did with this team, but, you know, they were, they were two lucky ping pong, uh, ping pong bounces the Rangers had mm-hmm. two years in a row, yeah. getting the number two and then the overall number one. For I mean, sure. there were low percentages of them getting those picks. So without those two picks, you basically have an Adam Fox trade and then a Zabinijad trade that, that Jeff Gordon made probably alone, maybe Glenn Sather was still there himself. So otherwise... Where where is where was the success that they had with this roster? And again, well, there well I, there is there is a, to, to be fair there is a ton of it. I mean they 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 executed the trade to move up and snag Keandre Miller. Uh, Ryan Lindgren, who they just signed to a three year extension, was a guy they got in a trade with the Bruins for Rick Nash. No doubt, no, Pavel no Buchnevich, a third round they, find in the draft. So they they, they did have their share of hits. But I, they, I I see where you're coming from with the luck that went right, on. Right, you see the way. where I'm coming from. There was there was some luck involved too. And then what I was going to follow that up was. If anybody is watching the NHL playoffs, look at these teams in the playoffs and you tell me if the Rangers look anywhere near, anywhere near these teams. Yeah, the Rangers have talent. But again, I say it a million times ad nauseum. There's no grit. There's no north-south players. These guys on the ice in these NHL playoffs are 
battering each other. They're battering each other for space. And when you play in the playoffs, a sexy game never, ever, ever, never works. It does not work. You have to be dirty and get into the corners. You have to be gritty. You have to be able to fight for that space. And the Rangers' young players are not developed in that way. And I don't know if they're going to – those are the types of players that they might be. I think Lafreniere can show that maybe Kako a bit. But otherwise, they don't have those those secondary and tertiary (coughs) <coughs> excuse me, type players on their roster. And that's where they would, they would, that's where, where Gordon and Davidson failed this roster. And again, you've seen it happening in the Carolina series where the Rangers were just dominated physically by Carolina, who for the most part is, is a physical team. You know, and, and again, you look at the Brooms, the Capitals, the Islanders, the Hurricanes, the Minnesota Wild, the Avalanche, even though the Avalanche have talent, but they got grit. They got guys that are banging in a corner. The St. Louis Blues. I mean, look at all these teams in the playoffs and what they have. They have guys that can play a north-south game that in the playoffs, you have to fight for space. The Rangers do not have that. They don't have it. And, and you can bring it away. You could bring in Rick Tockett, the coach. You better bring in Rick Tockett, the player, because that's what they need. Right. You could bring in the grittiest coach in the world. It doesn't matter if you don't well, have those sort of plays. But, but you that's, can't teach them that. That's why I think hiring a guy like that may help the front office. He may be able to instill a belief within the front office that you need players like that. And, and a common misconception is that you need that fourth line enforcer who is not good for anything except fighting. That's not the case. I mean, exhibit A, look at what happened in the Avalanche Blues game last night, Rob. Fight that occurred between Braden Shen and Gabriel Landeskog. Those, those and are not. That was a fight too. And those, those are not fourth line enforcers. No. You're talking about a top six forward in Gabriel yes. Landeskog, who's who's a key cog in Carolina's goal scoring. So yes. these are not just your, you know, you don't always just need the Tanner Glasses of the world, the fourth line players who don't produce anything offensively. It just they're good for special teams and they're good for pissing off the opposition. That's not what you need. You need players who can play that north-south style of hockey and guys who can also fill up the stat sheet while doing it. And listen, it, it all comes – that's why I think that Tockett might be a good a, a good choice here just because he might be able to instill that belief within the front office that you need to possess that kind of, that, that kind of talent within a team. And if Drury is looking to go an analytics route, Having a guy like Tockett or even a guy like Gallant may be the person that balances him out a little bit. And I'm, I'm not sure if he needs the balancing out because, you know, when you talk about the analytics, it seems like the the goaltenders, the former goaltenders are the people who are most receptive to the analytics. Uh, you hear Steve Valiquette talking on the Rangers pre and post game all the time. He's very in tune with the analytics. I think he's even created his own little site that compiles stats. Uh, guys like Kevin Weeks, you see him on the NHL network. He's very in tune with the analytics. Uh, one name that's actually been floated out there as a potential candidate for the Rangers vacancy has been Patrick Waugh. And another reason why is because Drury is receptive to the analytics and so is Patrick Waugh. But you need that balance. You can't rely solely on the analytics because if the analytics are just going to tell you you need a guy, a bunch of guys with a high Corsi percentage, it's not going to correlate to winning Stanley Cups. No. It's just not. No, it's it's not. But, you know, again, I, I look, I, I'm not sure it's so much about Tockett. I mean, from everything you read, he's going to get an interview, but it seems like Gallant is a front runner here. It really does. You know, well, Gallant it, it, would, I, I, the, the one thing that stands in the way, and we've been saying this too, is that 
given what Gallant did with Vegas, he seems like he would be a hot commodity for Seattle. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, you know, who, who know? I'm look, you know, it's tough to gauge Tocket because the Coyotes had some problems. They had a lot of issues with salary caps and, and revenue and, and money and, you know, all sorts of problems. So it's tough to always gauge a guy, how good of a coach he was, if he wasn't coaching a lot of talent and he really wasn't coaching a lot of talent. They didn't really have great goaltending there. You know, nobody was a great scorer there, I, you know, so they really didn't have a lot. It's always tough to gauge a guy like that. Yes. Tocket will bring you that mentality of, of fight and grit. But again, if you don't have those types of players on your roster, it, 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 it means shit, Andrew, it means yeah. nothing. You know, the, the problem with the problem with the Rangers is, again, they don't have those guys. And you're not going to get that out of the Brett Howden's, you know, Di Giuseppe. Rooney could probably be a useful player on this team, I think, as a fourth liner, because he is a little feisty. He'll fight occasionally here and there. He fights for space. But you got to get a guy like a George Reeves type of guy, somebody like that. And, you know, you look at the Bruins, and I think it was the Minnesota Wild that had cut him. He was released. And that was Mark Tenorti, who actually his father played with the Rangers back in the day years ago. Uh, Mark, Ten Mark Tenorti Sr. was a defenseman, and he was a little bit of a tough guy himself. And, and uh, this kid, Mark Tenorti, was a tough kid that got cut. The Bruins immediately scooped him up. And in the starting lineup the next day and had a fight with Tom Wilson. So those are the guys that you need, and the Rangers don't go after those guys. You can't have pretty players on four lines. You well, just can't. And sometimes you might have to take a Filipino and flip them to get these types of plays you need. Yeah. And I'm not just saying, look, I'm not just saying a guy that's just going to, you know, uh, uh, just uh, 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 like a John Scott type of player who was a guy that just, you know, ran up 300 penalty minutes and did nothing else in the ice. I'm talking a guy with a little bit of skill. You got to have a little yeah. bit of skill. Well, think, think about it this way, right? And this is excluding the Rangers and their Stanley Cup teams because they, they they had a pretty good team from top to bottom. They had a good mix of of skill and feistiness within the lineup. But if you think in recent memory, and I'm talking like the last six years or so, every single time the Rangers were faced with a tough matchup, there was always one guy within a playoff series that really was a thorn in the Rangers' side. And think about the types of players that those were. When we played Montreal, who was the thorn in the Rangers' side on a team like that? A Brendan Gallagher. He was not a guy who just racked up a bunch of penalty minutes. He was the type of guy who fought in the trenches, was good special teams-wise, fought for spacing, and he also scored some goals, some meaningful goals in that series. You know, a guy on the Ottawa Senators, a guy like a John Gabriel Pajot. Listen, he's not an enforcer, but he's the kind of guy who's not afraid to get dirty with his style of play while also bringing skill and offense to the table. And so, don't forget, he what Lord Lamorello was getting mocked when he gave up two number one picks for that guy. And Pajot has been one of the best players on the Islanders yeah. since they executed gave up two that number trade. one picks. Lamorello gave up, yeah. and he was getting universally mocked. They were like, "Oh, maybe Lou's missing out. You know, he's uh, he, he's missing a little bit. You know, he, he's off his game." Yep. And meanwhile, boom, look, look what he did, right? Look, I mean, who was, who was a big thorn in the side when they lost to, when they lost to the Tampa Bay lightning. Now look, they gave up a boatload of goals. Guys like Tyler Johnson were tremendous, but who was the, who was the thorn in the Rangers side? That series was a guy like Alex Kalorn, right? Yeah. Yeah. Third line forward. It gives yes. you offense and just, he's a thorn in your side. There's no but other Andrew, way to put it. When we watch these playoffs, these are the guys that have the most success in the playoffs. It's not the sexy. Yeah. Right. Of course it's Sidney Crosby's other world. You know, these right. guys are just generational players. We know that, but you know, guys like Philip and stuff like that. I don't know if they're going to have, you know, I, I don't know if they're going to have a, a, a lot of success in these sort of, in these sort of playoffs. 
No, you, so, there, there needs to be, and listen, it's not like you need to completely overhaul here, but there's a glaring weakness because like you said, you can look at the analytics all you want. You can look up on hockey reference and look at all these guys' numbers. But like you said, the eye test tells you most of the story. And if you sit down and you watch a playoff hockey game, whether it's Eastern Conference or Western Conference, you watch these two teams play and you just, you see how far the Rangers off or how far off the Rangers are in terms of style, right? Yeah, the Rangers have talent. They're top six, I think, can match up with a lot of top sixes around the league. But right. as far as the style of play and the mentality that's employed by these teams, the Rangers are not even close. And it's apparent just sitting down and watching a period. Andrew, I was watching those games last night. Bruins Capitals. I was watching the, the Wild game. I was watching the, the Avalanche and, and, the, and the Blues game. It's not even – I'm looking at it. The Predators are another team that always come hard. They come hard. So, you know, these, these are the guys that you need. And let's see if Drury addresses that. I just, I, I just don't want to see – I don't want to see this same sort of team coming into next season. And, and I'm just hoping that maybe Drury mixes in a little bit of analytics, but at the same time, he lets a guy just coach. That's what I right. like about a guy like Gallant, even a guy like Tockett. These are old school guys. Right. You know, and analytics means shit in the playoffs. I'm sorry. Maybe you could carry to a few regular season games. I mean, I don't know. You know what? I, the one thing I will say that is promising to me, and this is, I, I don't know if it came from Vince Mercogliano or someone who covers the Rangers did say that don't expect the coaching, coaching um, search to be resolved overnight. That jury is going to go through the gamut and he's going to do his due diligence and really look into every potential candidate here to make sure he gets this right. Because I think he acknowledges how crucial of a hiring that this is going to be. And that this can't just be someone that you're going to take a flyer on. No. This can't be someone that you're going to be closed minded about and just hire that someone because you're friends with them or you have a background with them. Like he, he's going to do his due diligence and go through the entire process here and, and and not rule out any names without talking to people and doing the research and talking to as many, as many different voices as you can get. And listen, it's not just because of the situation that the Rangers are in that that's important. I mean, I've always been of the belief that whenever there's a big time vacancy within your organization, uh, what's the downside in doing that? Do your well, due diligence, talk to everybody that you can. I don't see the downside in doing that. Here's a telltale sign about, about, um, you know, they waited for Quinn. They waited for him to be fired after the exit interviews. And that says a lot because I'd have to think, and you heard it too, Ryan Strom didn't give him the, a ringing endorsement. No, not at all. And you'd have to think it probably came from some of those players as well. Yeah. You yeah, know what I mean? For sure. So for sure. You ha have to think that. And listen, this is not like other sports, right? Other, other, other players from other sports have a keen way of dancing around the media. Hockey players are not like that. They don't pull any punches. They, no. they, they are straight shooters and they say what's on their mind. So when a hockey player does not go into descriptive detail about what a coach brings to the table, it tells you the whole story. And I, and I, it was Ryan Stromo. They asked about his, the development of his game under Quinn. And he basically was like, yeah, it's been good. And that's all he said. And that's all well, you need to know. Look, I, I, here's, here's another sign. And this is something I didn't realize until I read this the other day. Alexi Lafreniere had zero points on the power play this season. Zero points. How could that be? He had zero points on the power play. It wasn't getting I a mean, lot of minutes early on. 
Well, no. he wasn't even getting a lot of minutes later on either. I he, mean, they, he, he gave him a couple minutes, of reps period. here and there. Taco wasn't getting minutes. You were playing guys like Di Giuseppe, Rooney, and Bre- this Brett Howden. How many times did we say it? Yeah. How many times did we say it? So yeah, I think the know, only the only time the only time that I could think of that I seen Lafreniere on the power play was maybe in a blowout game. You know, a, a blowout game. You're up seven to one. You try to give some people some different looks. But as far as a legitimate chance, I mean, you never saw Lafreniere on the power play. You rarely saw Kako on the power play. Uh, and when they were without Adam Fox due to COVID protocols, and there was even a stretch where the power play was not producing, and they never gave Keandre Miller a look to man the power play. Like it's just you had your top six type players as far as your forwards were concerned, and you had Adam Fox, and you just continued to run that into the ground. And then eventually, when you started to give other people looks, it was the typical favorites of Quinn, the DiGiuseppes and the Howdens and the, uh, you know, never a guy like Gautier never gets a chance. And he was a healthy scratch for most of the end of the season. Like, it's the same, it's the same culprits every single time that continued to get preferential treatment. And it was obvious. And that, that, listen, that has to stop. That, that, that made no sense because, again, in a year where you're supposed to be developing um, – developing a, uh, a, um, your, your team you, at the same time you develop these NHL plays, you still have a requirement to teach them how to win the game and to win games. You know, you, you still, you know, that that's still a requirement here. I mean, you know what I mean? And, and at the same time, if you're supposed to be developing these kids, well, how the hell is it, is, is it nailing them on the bench? Because maybe you didn't like a shift that they took, so you could play Brett Howden more. How is that developing these guys? That's not developing them. It's not. So look, the next coach, again, you know, they have to take this team to another level. They just have to. But at the same time, this roster has to be shored up a little bit more. And we know that. Yes, for sure. For sure. So Jury has his hands full. And whoever he decides in the hiring process, you know, like I said, the reports that are out there are, that he's not going to be hiring a coach overnight, that this is going to be an extensive search and an extensive process, which I think is the right thing. And and when we start to have more clarity on who the coach is going to be or who the final candidates are, I think Rob and I can probably give you a more of more of more conviction behind how we feel about those potential candidates. Uh, As as we know, the only two confirmed interviews so far, the two I mentioned that who is Gallant and Tockett, so, um, you know, once this process starts to near the finish line, you know, Rob and I will certainly revisit and, and we'll go more into detail. But there's a lot of work that needs to be done this offseason. Yeah, no, they got to – listen, that, it's all going to sure. start with the coach, Andrew, and then after that it's going to be roster construction. That's what yes. it's going to be. And you can't it's, construct the roster until you figure out the coach because there needs to be talks between the front office and the coach. So this needs to get shared up first. And, and you know what? You're going through the playoffs here, so you have time before you really need to start going down and, and – crossing the T's and dotting the I's as far as shoring up the roster. So they, they have time here. So this is, this, there's no need to rush. Oh no, listen, there's time, but I'll tell you right now, there's going to be some guys. If, if they're going to get these types of players that I mentioned, you know, you might have to trade a craft soap. You might have to trade a heedle, you know, look again, you know, people fall in love and it's like this in any sport, for the most part, people fall in love with the prospect. Like they're going to be the next Malkin, the next Crosby, the next Ovechkin. These guys aren't guaranteed to be anything, not anything. So sometimes you take these prospects and spin them into, into constructing your roster the way you need it to be in order to win. The Yankees did that in the 90s when they traded the Roberto Kellys of the world. And people were like, Roberto Kelly, you know, uh, for Paul O'Neill, he's only a part-time player, but Paul O'Neill brought them what they needed. Tino Martinez brought them what they needed. They used their prospect base to bring in these types of players. Yeah. 
you know, and I mean, that's look, what uh, needs to be done. The Mets how, did the how same many, thing in 86. How many Cubs fans were up in arms when they traded away Glaber Torres to get a role to Chapman? But guess right. what? It, but it brought them their were, first it, World Series in 108 right. years, so no one even blinks. No one blinks. Torres was not going to play with them, but we needed a we needed a, a, a bona fide closer. They won a World Series. You know what? There's forgiveness then. You can't worry about Glaber Torres. Right. And again, just because he's a top prospect, it's not guaranteeing you that he's going to be this stud. How many guys have we seen that were top prospects in any sport? I mean, for God's sake, everybody thought Odell Beckham was going to the Hall of Fame after his first couple of seasons. How's that worked out lately? Yeah. I, you know what I mean? So this is I mean, right, to- right, right here, right here with our favorite team, the Mets. I mean, yeah. how much did we hear about Ahmed Rosario before he came up? Andrew, how many times do we have stud pitching staffs? Syndergaard, Harvey, DeGrom, it was all supposed to be those three guys. And Harvey didn't pan out. Syndergaard really eh, Has, he hasn't, out hasn't really mediocre. panned out. Yeah, no, he's been decent, but he doesn't so fit again, the billing. Yeah. These were all top studs. What happened yeah. to them? Where are they now? Yeah. With the exception of DeGrom. Yeah. Doesn't Steven always translate. Matt, Steven Matz, another guy. What happened? You know what I mean? So these yeah, you, you need to you need to you need to build Here's a picture-perfect scenario, and this is really the blueprint. You need to be able to to build a deep enough prospect pool where you're guaranteed to hit on some of those prospects. You know, everyone knows that. The more prospects you have, the more they're the higher the likelihood that some of those guys are going to pan out. And then once some of those guys start to emerge within at, at the pro level, and you start to develop an identity for your team, that is when other prospects start to become expendable because you see the light at the end of the tunnel you see the finish line and in order to get there there are a couple pieces that you're missing that's when you need to be able to flip them and i and i agree with you I did. listen i love all these guys and, and and some of them i love just because i tend to love prospects too right but you know we have the heatles we have the lafreniers we have the cocos we have the keandre millers we have the craft saws we have the morgan barons but has it translated to anything it hasn't yet and we're and we're identifying certain parts of this team that need to be addressed and and a lot of times that's the only way that you can do them is that some of those pieces that you fell in love with for the right or the wrong reasons need to become expendable and you know people fall in love with heatle but i mean listen i understand he missed some time but but heatle really didn't do a lot he really hasn't distinguished himself at all. Now, look, it took Buchnevich, you know, uh, three, four years to really develop his game to where he became, in fact, he was killing power plays this year, you know? So you think about it and he, you know, he, he was, he was on the ice a lot. Buchnevich had a pretty good year. I've been saying it. I think, I think he played himself into a contract with another team. Well, and that's a great point. I was just going to say that he might be the piece you might need to flip because Mm -hmm. I don't know. Look, are they lamenting the Kreider contract at this point right now? Mm, they might be. 100%. Everybody, we were, listen, I, I want to cry to hear. I love Kreider. He's an original Ranger. You know, um, I, I, I felt like he was hot as a pistol at the time. But at the same time, the guy Kreider you want to be never panned out. He was supposed to be that powered forward, that, that, that Cam Neely sort of guy, that power forward, that, that strong guy that's going to muscle other guys off the puck or fight. And, you know, he was never like that Kreider. Kreider, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's a hockey IQ. I don't know if there are games he just disappears. Yeah, for weeks, for weeks at a time. Doesn't make an impact at all. And you look at him for his size and his strength and you say, Jesus, where where is his game? What is his game? Standing in front of the net and getting a deflection? Okay, that's all well and good. 
But how about streaking down the right wing and blasting one, you know, top shelf? Or how about taking a guy and battering ramming into the corner like Tom Wilson does to everybody? You know, you, you just don't see that from Kreider. You don't see it enough. You see it in spurts. Right. You see right. it in spurts. Yeah. So there's, there's certainly a lot, a lot of work that needs to be done this offseason. So the first step is acknowledging the coach. And like I said, once that once that process starts to get towards the end, Rob and I will revisit and and we'll kind of lay out a roadmap here of, of, of how exactly we execute these things to, to get the roster to where it needs to be. Um, the other team in Madison Square Garden that's in a really unique situation, and I say unique because it's been foreign. I mean, the playoffs have been foreign to the New York Knicks for so long, but they've locked things up. They are the fourth seed in the Eastern Conference, just an impeccable season from the Knicks. They draw the Atlanta Hawks in the first round, and that series will kick off on uh, on Sunday. And I got to say, Rob, I mean, these are these are weird circumstances with the pandemic and you're not going to have a full house in Madison Square Garden, which you would absolutely love. Are they going, aren't they going to 50 percent? Aren't they going to 50? Yes, they're, they're increasing, but you're not yeah. going to see the 100 percent, which you would have loved to have seen. And we'll get back there at a, at a certain point in the not so distant future, of course. But, you know, this this is a really good time for Knicks fans. And, and again, you're playing with house money because you haven't been good for such a long time. And. Liz, I don't even think that you could be disappointed with a first round exit, but if you look at the teams that the Knicks had the capability of drawing in the first round, and those three teams were the Atlanta Hawks, the Miami Heat, or the Milwaukee Bucks, um, and I, I think they probably lucked out as best as they could by drawing the Hawks because Miami is a type of team that, you know, they have some star power with Jimmy Butler. They've been dealing with a lot of injuries, but Miami has that playoff experience and that playoff pedigree, whereas the Knicks don't. And the same thing with Milwaukee. I mean, they have the star power with Giannis. They have Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton. They're well coached also. And and they got a really deep team with that playoff experience. You get a team like the Hawks that really play a lackadaisical brand of basketball, a lot of shooting from the perimeter. And these are all things that play into the Knicks' strength, which is shutting down the perimeter, playing a physical brand of basketball, penetrating the interior, getting to the foul line, doing the dirty work. That's not a brand of basketball that the Hawks are accustomed to playing. They're, they're used to you know, Trey Young making Instagram highlights and carrying them to some wins. So this is probably the most beneficial matchup. They still have to go out there and perform. I don't think the Knicks are going to go out there and sweep the Hawks by any stretch. I think it'll be a competitive series, but they got a real good chance to move it on to the second round here for sure. Well, listen, they went 3-0 against the Hawks this season. Doesn't guarantee you anything, you know, in the playoffs. But at the same time, don't forget the Hawks were a hot team down the stretch. They won seven of their last eight. The Knicks had to win their last three games, which they did, and they got a little bit of help, so they were able to secure the. Um, they were able to secure the uh, um, the the the, uh, the the four seed, which got them the home court advantage. Home court, yep. So look, I, I think it's going to be a long series. I think it's going to go seven. Hawks have a good team, you know. The John Collins is a good player. Clint Capella is a hell of a player, and you know they even brought over uh, uh, Lou Williams. They brought over Lou Williams, you know, from the Clippers. So he was a six man of the year, although he hasn't played well since the trade was made. But look, I mean, uh, it's going to be a tough series for the Knicks. And you got to figure that the Hawks will probably do their best to double up on Julius Randle and let somebody else beat them. But Randle's going to get what's his. And, you know, you're starting to see again, you know, RJ Barrett just, you know, he's just, his game is developing every single time you see him now, Andrew. So, no, the Knicks are going to be tough because, again, you know, they, 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 they play defense. Yeah, the, they the one, play a hardcore defense. The only thing that concerns me, and, and I didn't watch a ton of Knicks basketball early on in the season until they finally solidified themselves as a competitive team. I started watching some games down the stretch, and, and 
you know, you'd probably be better versed to, to answer this than me because I didn't watch every game, but particularly that game against the Lakers last week. I mean, they were missing LeBron, obviously. They did have Anthony Davis, and, and the Lakers ended up winning that game in overtime. But one thing that stood out to me is for a team that had a lot of success defending the three, it seemed like later on in the season that wasn't the case. And the eye test was telling me in that game that it looks like that that defensive mentality that's employed by Tom Thibodeau, it leads them almost to be too anxious to try to trap the person with the ball, and it leaves them susceptible to leaving someone open for three. And I don't think you could do that against the Hawks because you just look up and down that roster. I mean, Tony Snell is a guy who's shooting over 50% from three. He doesn't shoot as much as some other guys do, but he's shooting over 50%. We know what Trey Young can do from deep. A Bogdanovich three-point shooter. Gallinari's the three-point shooter, right? They got a bunch of guys. Lou Williams, a guy who can shoot the three. So they got a ton of guys that can hurt you from downtown, and you can't get away with leaving the perimeter open. So they're going to have to be stingy. And we know the Knicks don't have the offensive fire to power to be able to to get into shootouts with teams. So you're going to need to be you're going to need to to limit the Hawks offensively and dictate the pace of play if you want to be able to handle them. Well, listen, no doubt. But, you know, that game against the Lake is, you know, a, a lot of people were disappointed because LeBron did not play that game. The Knicks kind of blew that game. Um, but at the same time, people have to understand that the Lakers were a desperate team. You know, they were playing for that playoff, playing lives, you know. So they were a desperate team. They had to win that game. If they lose that game, they might be knocked out completely. Right. So, you know, they were a desperate team there. And look, the Knicks had a successful West Coast trip. Don't forget, Andrew, remember, remember what we said going into that second half of the season with the Knicks is that, you know, we looked at their schedule and says, oh, here's when the Knicks are going to, you know, I mean, here's when they're going to struggle now with this schedule coming up. And look what happened. They didn't. They handled it beautifully. Yes. Right? They yes. handled it beautifully to the point where, where do you see Vegas missed that badly on an under and over total of 22 they had for the Knicks and the Knicks hit 41. Do you see Vegas hit that badly? No, no, you never do. And, and in that second half of the season, I think the Knicks are underdogs in this series, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that, that flipped with the money that was being put on the Knicks. Okay. Yeah. I know they started out the other day, a couple of days ago, yesterday they were underdogs in the series. Yeah. They, they opened the series price to open things up was plus one Oh five. And now, it's minus 115 on both sides. Okay. And I think that has to do with the money that was being put on the Knicks. And, and, and you know, I I can't blame the public for, for putting money on the Knicks. I mean, it, you look at that second half of the season where we thought that they may be struggling because of the strength of the schedule. But, I mean, you just look. Is there any game that you can pinpoint in the second half of the season where they lost a game that they should have won 100%? Yeah, no, I look, it's, it's a successful season. But here's my question to you. Should Nick fans, and listen, I'm a Nick fan. Should Nick fans be disappointed if the Knicks lose this series to the Hawks? Uh, you, does, you could, does you could it be, wind up becoming, does it wind up becoming a disappointing finish season? No, definitely not a disappointing season. Um, but you could be, and I, I said this two weeks ago, I, I think there's a difference between being disappointed in the season and being disappointed with the loss. I mean, any fan of a team is going to be disappointed when you want your team to win and they fall short and they don't. But overall, I don't, I don't think it throws the Knicks off course from what they want to do. I mean, listen, they finally turned themselves into a, a city with a formidable basketball team. They've built themselves a solid little core here full of guys who have bought into the culture. 
But you need to supplement with star power. I mean, let's be honest, Rob. We love Julius Randle and everything he's done, and he's turned into a star in this town. R.J. Barrett is a, is a draft pick who has really turned himself into a nice player and has won over a lot of fans. But in today's NBA, you're not competing for a championship or you're not going to be a favorite to win a championship with Julius Randle and R.J. Barrett as your 1A and 1B. But, but why not? I mean, look, Julius Randle is arguably a top 10 player in his league this year. He was a top 10 player in his league. There's no doubt. You know, people could argue that, but I don't think you have an argument because what he did offensively and defensively, you know, he's a top 10 player in this league. And RJ Barrett is working his way up to that level because you could see it in his game where next year, if he takes that big step, what everybody's expecting him to take, because he certainly looks the part, this kid. Yeah, well, he, he, has, his, he, he, he looks, has his inconsistencies, but again, he's 20 years old. Yeah, he, he looks the part, and I'll be the first one to admit it. I mean, I got on RJ's case early. I wasn't a fan of him at Duke, so I, I didn't – not that I didn't like the pick because there was no one else that you were going to be drafting a third overall. It was right, just – they got it, stuck with that. Yeah, they, they got, got stuck with Morant, that pick yeah, once Morant get, and Zion are off the two. board. Yeah, that was it. yeah, 100%. Yeah. So it's yeah. not like I, I was mad at the pick, but I just didn't think that he was going to pan out based on watching him at Duke. And, and I was wrong about him, but with that being said – and there's still room – for him to develop there's still time for him to develop but he's hit some big shots this year rj barrett but he has not to me at least shown you the ability to take over a game and, well, I, and listen, I think again he's one he's offensive player old. to do that he's 20 years old his game is developing and typical sure. will develop it and not only that but he's playing on both sides He's playing on both sides of the court, offense and defense. So, you know, he's learning the game. And under Thibodeau, you give this kid another year or two, I'm telling you right now, this kid's going to be a top player in this league. There's no doubt. So who's your favorite in the Eastern Conference? I mean, how could it not be the Nets? I mean, Jesus Christ. That's what I'm saying. Those three three guys – I think, a lot of people, uh, together. I think a lot of people are overstating them not having that much chemistry because they just do – those three guys can do so much that I don't really think they need to. I mean, they just they just totally – they bring so many skills to the table that it's impossible to shut them down. Yeah, so, yeah they mean, don't play defense, which, which kind of is a drawback of having three, you know, guys with that kind of scoring prowess. But I, I think – I don't think anybody can say that it's not Brooklyn, except for people who live in Philadelphia who are going to say as long as as long as Durant, Harden, and Irving are, are all are all uh, healthy. I mean, I, I it's going to be difficult to beat that team. Maybe the Sixes will compete against them. Maybe I, you know, I don't know. I, I, can the Sixes compete against them? I, but if they're all healthy, the Nets. See, it's it's hard to gauge the Nets because people. I'm not saying people are overlooking the Nets, but because Harden, Durant, and and Irving missed so much time and they hardly played any games together, everybody's kind of dismissing what the Nets have still done, even with guys getting hurt. I yeah. mean, there's 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 nothing to 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 base it off of, right? You don't have enough of a sample size to say once those guys get together, this is what they're going to do because we haven't seen it yet. With that being said. I don't think that it's going to be a, a downside or it's going to lead to the Nets' demise that they didn't have that time together. I think they're still the overwhelming favorite. And then what so about the West? Say, I was going to say, you know, it's interesting with the West because with LeBron and Anthony Davis back healthy, and as much as they have to play a playing game, the Lakers have to be the favorite. You know, I, I got to say, I, I can't – and I used to love LeBron. 
I can't take him anymore. I, I get it. Listen, I couldn't I take that take guy. Him. I couldn't take that guy five, six, seven years ago. I couldn't oh take God. him. But you can't argue the fact that he's one of the great players to ever play the game. No, and I'll, I'll never say he's you know, not. But he just, he right. just, you just can't just take his whole life, his whole stick, whatever he's got going on. Like a friend of mine brought up a great point. My friend Chad said the other day, he goes, how come every time there's a picture of LeBron reading a book, he's always on page one? <laughs> yeah. Yep. All the time. He's reading some sort of book, like, you know. Well, the, the thing that the thing that gets me is that every single year, and this has been going on for like three, four years now, he throws this little sly comment out there right before the playoffs, and it's almost like he's creating an excuse for himself if he ends up falling short. And I remember last year in the bubble, he made that comment in the very beginning saying something along the lines of, this doesn't even feel like playoff basketball. It right, feels so right. strange. And he was kind of greasing the skids for if the Lakers lost, he could fall back on that. And then if he wins, everyone has to bend their knee and say, oh, my God, LeBron, how you battled through adversity. Oh, my goodness. And now this year, he makes one comment saying that his ankle will never feel 100% again. That's how bad of an ankle sprain it was. And then, two, when talking about the Warriors – uh, matchup, matchup with the Warriors in the playing round. He makes the comment that, well, this is the toughest matchup ever. You know, we're playing against the MVP of this league right now, so we got our work cut out for it. It's almost like he creates a little narrative for an excuse, and it just it it drives me insane. I can't take it. And I love the guy. I love the guy. And I, I believe me, I'm a Cavs fan. I mean, listen, so when I, he came I, back to the Cavs, I loved him. But I mean, come on. Do you see? Do you see the Nuggets beating him? Do you see the um? The Jazz beating them. Full, oh, you feel when the Lakers fully healthy? Lakers do fully I see healthy. anybody beating them? Uh, I mean, you know, they're fully healthy. This, I, I don't know. They have to. How could they not be the favorite? No, how you know, I, the favorite? I got it. I got to tell you. And I, I, I mean, think they're gonna, like, I mean, look, the Warriors. Look, Steph. First of all, Steph Curry had a phenomenal year. I mean, oh, he yeah. made, he put that team on his back for God's sake. He won another scoring title. That guy put that team on his back. I mean, you know. You look at that guy. I mean, Jesus, it's unreal how good that guy is. My God. I mean, yeah, my I, God. I think the Lake, the Lakers are the favorite. The one team that I think has the the biggest chance to knock them off would be the Phoenix Suns. I, I just, I like that Suns team. I don't know. Team. You think so? <sighs> I like that Suns team. I really do. I've, I've always, always loved Devin Booker more than most people do. Yeah, I just don't know if they have enough to match up with, with AD and LeBron. I just don't. Well, they have guys. They have guys from the outside that can shoot, which is good. Yeah. I mean, Chris Paul manning the point, enough, a seasoned though, veteran, you know. and they have DeAndre Ayton to to con, to neutralize the interior and keep Anthony Davis from scoring fifty. I mean, Anthony Davis, one of the great players of this generation, so you're not going to shut him down. But someone that can either match his output, as Villar just hits a bomb and that one's gone, Mets take a two nothing lead. Well, they got to get contributions from these guys. We'll go. We'll go into the Mets yeah. in a little while. Yeah, these they got to get contributions from these guys. Yeah. So, so, so if you, if you're a betting man and you're putting your money where your mouth is and you have to pick a finals matchup, you're, you're going Nets Lakers. Nets Lakers. Yeah. And I think the Nets beat them. I think the Nets beat them. I mean, look, you have to, you you have to, um, you, you have to make them the favorite. You have to, the Lakers. How could you not? You have to make them the favorite in the West comes time. I, I think, and this is the scary part, Andrew. Think about this. The Nets play the Lakers. Who's favored in that series? You know what? I think I think it depends on how easily 
each team handles their opponents leading up to the finals. If, if the three of those guys in Brooklyn are healthy and for the first three rounds, they just obliterate everyone in their path. I would have to think that they're going to be the favorites, but I mean, if both teams are just, you know, playing your normal playoff series where you're playing a good brand of basketball and you just get to where you need to go. I could see the Lakers, especially with the Lakers being defending champs. I could see them being the favorite. A lot, of it, say, a lot of it hinges on how the Nets look here with all three of those say, guys. I was going to say, put LeBron as an underdog. <laughs> well, yeah, and that'll be that that'll would be, be yeah. that would be the storyline. LeBron James is he's the underdog, and LeBron James yep. will feed off of that. Yep. Well, that's he what the, will that's, completely feed off of that. That's what these superstar athletes always do. They they feed let these narratives be created, and they use it as fuel and. Not like he needs any motivation because he's one of the most motivated guys ever, but that's what these guys do. I mean, you watched the last dance, didn't you, Rob? These, yes. these things that Michael Jordan concocted in oh, his mind to just give him stories. a not to give him motivation because he didn't need it, but, but just to give him that. a little added motivation. Yeah. He wanted that. He wanted yep. that motive. It motivated him. He made up things in his head. Guys yep. were like, what do you mean? I never said that. I mean, look at that whole situation with George Carl. Yeah. With George Carl. And it was even a situation with the Knicks with Jeff Van Gundy. I think it was that time when he went to the casino or something, something happened when he found out he went to Atlantic city and he started concocting his story that Jeff Van Gundy said something about, and Van Gundy said, never said anything. And that's when Van Gundy told his, he, he told his Nick teams, Hey, do not fall into the trap of this guy. He's going to say things to you to make you either feel good about yourself and make him feel like he's the underdog. And Van Gundy said, don't fall into that trap. And Michael Jordan spun it the whole other way. Mm-hmm. On the, I mean, I, I, just you know, but this is what the this is what the great players do. This is what the great players do. All right, Rob. How about we uh, we switch gears here? We we welcome on our good buddy Bruce Shine. He's here to join us once again. I know last week we had him on for the whole episode because there was just so many things to talk about. But this is what we're doing tonight. Is kind of what we what we envisioned to do with Bruce was to have him on for for forty five minutes to an hour each week. Uh, just so he can kind of lend his voice to some of the topics we're talking about. Bruce is more than happy to jump on. We have a name for the segment now. We're going to call it Time to Shine with our good buddy Bruce Shine. And, and he's back once again. And, Bruce, I got to tell you, you know, before we, we, we get into the Knicks, because that's where we wanted to start, you know, we spent a good six or seven minutes to open last week talking about Tim Tebow and his return to football. And I got to tell you, he, he's probably kicking himself in the ass right now because if he didn't decide to leave baseball with all these injuries the Mets have right now, he might be next man up to get on the active roster. Never mind that. What's with Kelvin Benjamin? I mean, the Giants are a day late a dollar short here. What are they doing with reclamation <laughs> projects? If you're going to go down that road, bring in Tebow. Why not? I it's mean, it's crazy. It's bring unbelievable. Him, bring him back to the Big Apple for crying out loud. It's unreal what's been going on this past uh, week. I, know, but, I mean, and the Mike Trout news, I mean, it just – It never it, ends. That keeps coming in, 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 in droves. And I, I don't know if this is – you know, you want this to be your jumping off point, boys. But, we, you know, we touched on it last week. I mean, it's, there's an obvious cause and effect here. We've all heard and, and read the various theories – as to how this all came about. I mean, but clearly something went amiss with how guys ramped up for the 16 game sprint that was last year. And I guess the confusion about what was going to be the start of the 2021 season, was it going to be in February? Was it going to be in March? And you can't tell me with the, this astronomical attrition rate with these injuries right now, again, that there, there's some cause and effect here. It's, 
it's 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 horrendous. It's it's impossible to watch some of these teams. They're hardly recognizable. Let me tell you something. There'd be less injuries with a potato sack race at a nursing home at this point right now. <laughs> I, I'm telling you. No. The and and injuries, they're all the same, Rob. They're all soft tissue injuries with every single one of these guys. Yeah. It's the side tightness and the calf and the quad and the oblique. All these people are having the same injuries. It, it's devastating. It really is. Yeah, you know, listen, I'm messaging back and forth earlier today with, with a couple of my uh, – fellow Yankee compatriots and they go there goes stand again on the injured list guy can't stay healthy he can't sneeze without going on the aisle for 10 days and they're absolutely right but the fact of the matter is with everything else going on right now I'm I'm stunned that he made it this this far without you know ending up doing something to you know adverse with his body it's it's listen you know with, with him there's clearly a pattern but in in baseball right now it's just i i don't know what happened i don't know what you attribute to this like i said there's a thousand theories out there and man it's it's gone uh, it's got a miss in an awful hurry and at an incredible rate yeah for for sure just look at the mets alone last night taiwan walker everything's muscle tightness tightness muscle tightness muscle the hamstring tight it's all nobody's even saying it's a pull or a strain they're saying tightness and it's big names. It's one huge name after the other. I mean, yeah. the Mets have been the second most seriously afflicted team here. The Padres being, uh, you know, atop that dubious list, if you will. And a lot of that is, is COVID related. But I mean, just the, the biggest names in the sport, nobody's safe. No, it doesn't end. I mean, you, you had Acuna who, who just narrowly missed a big scare with the ankle a couple days ago. He was back in the lineup for this Mets series, but he doesn't look right. I mean, there was a fly ball to right field last night where he could not decelerate to slow down for a ball that had a lot of top spin on it. So he's obviously not feeling 100 percent, you know, Padres, Tatis, Angels, Trout, Mets with Conforto and McNeil and DeGrom. I mean, it, you're, you're right, Bruce. It's it's the biggest names of the sport on the biggest stage that are going out and and. At this point, you might as well just have the have the Syracuse Mets taken the field to play on the Atlanta Braves this week. That or let's bring back the PEDs. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, the hell with standing your your moral ground. I mean, this a lot of this is just impossible to watch right now. The game sure. has other things afflicting it right now, as we talked about ad nauseum with just the insidious offense we're seeing out there across the that has reached epidemic proportions across the landscape, but these injuries is just, uh, I can't put it any better than it's lending more insult to injury, so to speak. Right. So we'll, we'll get, uh, we'll get further in depth with a lot of the baseball later on Um, real quick before we got into that stuff. And and we, we thank you for coming on once again, obviously Um, we were wrapping up our Knicks discussion right before you hopped on with us. And, you know, I said in the very beginning, Bruce, that you, you hate to look ahead and celebrate, your opponent in a playoff series, because that could be motivation. But from a fan's perspective, just looking back here, I just think out of the three potential draws the Knicks could have gotten in the first round with them being the Hawks, the Bucks, and the Heat, I think the the Knicks match up well with their style of basketball with the Hawks better than those other two teams. Because one, they have the star power, Giannis with the Bucks, Jimmy Butler with the Heat. Uh, they, they have the playoff experience and the playoff pedigree, whereas the Knicks don't. When it comes to the Hawks, they're kind of a lackadaisical team. They like to shoot from the perimeter, and and they don't play that that fierce and gritty style of basketball that the Knicks do. And I think 
that style of play that the Knicks employ could neutralize what they do best. I don't know if that's just wishful thinking, but fr- from a from a layman just sitting back and watching this, I think that's a beneficial matchup for this team. Yeah, I'm going to be interested interested to see how the officials allow the Knicks to deploy their uh, their style of play now that you know it, it's playoff season. It's not the 1990s anymore. Not going to be able to go out there and play rough and tumble uh, basketball as was those. Uh, those, those Knicks teams, uh, modus operandi. Uh, yeah, I agree with you for all the reasons that you just suggested that this is the most favorable of the matchups. It's not a great matchup for them. Uh, there are very few teams that are good matchups for the Knicks. Listen, I, I thought this week in and of itself with the close calls all at home versus middling teams like the Spurs, like the Hornets, and again, whatever was left of uh, of the Boston Celtics out there, if they're there, if they were any more injured, they'd be a Major League Baseball team. But uh, I I just think the Knicks are a lot closer to that than saying a, a legitimate fourth seed. You know, right now, if you're a Knicks fan, as as we all are, it's like you feel fairly confident what Julius Randle's going to give you. But if he's not there, then what do they resort to? while their opposition has plenty of resources. They got that great backcourt with Young and Bogdanovich. They got a terrific frontcourt with Collins and, and Capella. And I think who, the guy who's really going to be the X factor in this series, at least from Atlanta side of things, is DeAndre Hunter, who is a ferocious defender. He can handle virtually anyone, any position on the floor, one-on-one. He's healthy now. He's had a, a, just a myriad of knee issues. Throughout the year, he's going to see a lot of time on Randall, and I'm not so sure that Rose quickly, R.J. Barrett are ready to pick up the slack if Julius Randall isn't the guy they need him to be in this series. Now he tore up the Hawks uh, as far as the three regular season games are concerned. Again, this is a different Hawks team. They've been, they've been a four different team since McMillan took over for Pierce. Uh, I'm real worried about this series. Uh, thank goodness for the home court. That's going to be a raucous Madison Square Garden, regardless of whatever number in terms of fans are allowed in the building. But, uh, you know, gun to my head, I kind of like the Hawks in this series, say six or seven games. You do? Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, like I was telling Andrew before you jumped on, you know, Hawks were a hot team. They won seven of their last eight games. You know, they, they have a good team with some playoff pedigree on there. You know, with guys like Clint Capella and Lou Williams there and Danilo Gallinari. We remember that name, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> he went into Camelo Anthony trade. So I think this is going to be a tough series. But I tell you, one determining factor is going to be the referees. Are they going to allow the Knicks to play that stifling sort of defense that the Knicks like to play? Or is it going to be a whistle fest? You know, the little, little and factors Trey, like and that. Trey Young gets a lot of whistles. He gets a lot of whistles. But, you know, we'll see. I, you know, let's see what happens in the playoffs. Um, you know, I, I feel that I feel like this game, this, this series is going to go six, seven games myself. I'm hoping the Knicks win because I'm a Knicks fan. I'd love to see them get to a second round. But I posed the question to Andrew, and I want to ask you, Bruce. You know, coming, coming off 41 wins, and I said, you know, Vegas, Vegas had them at 22. You never see Vegas get it that wrong. And they got it blatantly wrong. So, you know... Let's say the Knicks lose in five. Disappointing season for the Knicks fan? Oh, absolutely not. This is house money. Come on. Now we, we've been in the best. But even losing the to the Hawks? Gravy. Yeah, come on. How 
you know, we've been stuck in the graveyard for a better part of a decade. No, no, no. This has been a monumental success, but let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. From where we are to the uh, legend of the heroes, the canyon of heroes, I should say, parade, we're a long, long way off from, from those visions of grandeur. They, they got a lot of work to do to get there, but this was obviously an incredible first step. And even if they get smoked and swept out of this series, yeah, it'll be a bitter pill for a few hours, but, but ultimately put some time into the equation. This season's going to be viewed as a market success. Yeah, and I had that conversation with a buddy of mine this week, Bruce, and they basically said that the only way they'd be disappointed is if they got swept. And I even said, look, if you want to look at the bright side of things, I would even say I wouldn't spin it and say it's totally a positive, but getting swept would even be beneficial because I think that would allow the fan base to really swallow a difficult pill and tamper their expectations and realize how far they actually are off from competing from a championship, as you just said. But doesn't it also send a message to World Wide West and and, and the people that are running the show in the front office that, okay, we're not as close as some have suggested we are to, you know, to grabbing that brass ring. Let's not dilute ourselves into believing we have a championship roster here. There's still a lot of work that needs to be due with putting the right team in place. They got the right front office. Clearly, they got the right coach. And they seemingly have, you know, a couple of nice pieces in Randall and Barrett and quickly, although I'm not wholeheartedly sold on all three of those guys either. But but clearly, it's the 180 from where we were sitting a year ago in terms of the overall direction and prospects. And let's not forget Alec Burks, who's probably been their second best player, maybe arguably Alec Burks. Been Burks terrific. And, yeah, I mean, Bullock is, and Bullock is going to be a Bullock big is player. a good player. Taj Gibson's a good, solid player. Bullock is going to be very important in this series, not just with his three-point shooting prowess, but his, but his defense, you know, especially – you know, around the perimeter, they, you know, you, you, they might have to dust off Frank Nielakina, you know, as well. We, we know the guy's got no offensive game whatsoever, but the guy can play defense. We don't need to see Alfred Payton anymore. Anyway, uh, no. I don't know what Derek Rose at 32 with a bad ankle has to give here. You'd have to think that the week off is going to help, but yeah, they have, they have a lot of nice pieces. Do they have enough star power that, you know, when you put your head on the pillow at night and say, okay, you know what, we're, we're there, we're getting there. I'm not, I'm not sure the Knicks are at that point yet. Even as great as Randall has been this year, I'm not sure even at this point in time, if he's the centerpiece for what we need going forward, he's a nice piece, but is he immovable? Is he, is he an absolute must have keep? I, I don't know if I go as far as to depict him as that either. Well, one thing I said to Rob that I'll be interested to see, and it especially rang true in the game against the Lakers. And because I haven't watched a ton of Knicks basketball throughout the whole entire year, I've just been watching, you know, kind of getting to get an eye on them as the season was winding down and they solidified themselves as a playoff team. But one thing about their defense that struggled down the stretch a bit 
And again, I don't know if that Lakers game was just an outlier or not, but one thing that stood out to me was that it seemed like with Thibodeau's defensive strategy, it seems like a lot of the players, Bruce, are almost too eager to trap, and it opens up the capability to shoot from the perimeter when they attack the ball handler like that. And that's not something that you can do against Atlanta because with the Trey Youngs and the Gallinari's, a guy like Tony Snell who falls under the radar but is shooting a measly uh, 53% from behind the arc this season. I mean, they have a bunch of different options. So if, if you get too eager and try to crash on the ball handler, the Hawks can beat you from the outside. And while this is not a an easy matchup for the Knicks. It is a favorable one compared to the other three teams, but the Hawks have a couple ways that they can beat you if the Knicks aren't careful. Yeah, look, that Laker game nearly killed them the way it went down and they had it. I looked at that as more of a, of a mental misstep than, than anything physical. You know, Rose didn't box out his guy. There's a couple of other plays down the stretch that, you know, if their their heads were, were fully into what was going on, you know, in the key moments in a pressure cooker, I think that uh, I think that the, the result would have been different than it ultimately it was. And, you know, as far as your point on on the weapon, the weapons the Hawks have, you know, you got to remember, too, the Knicks are one of the best three-point shooting teams in the league as well. The turnabout is fair play. You know, the Hawks are going to have to account for that as well. They might not have the household names you know, the guys that we've mentioned with, with you know, Young and Collins and Bogdanovich, Gallinari off the bench. But, you know, the Knicks are, are one of the top three-point shooting teams in the league as well. And that, that's going to be something that Atlanta is going to have to contend with. But with the Knicks and their offense, it all begins and ends with Julius Randle. Um, and if he doesn't have it, they're, they're in big trouble. The, while the Hawks, conversely, even if they don't get a star-studded game from their best player, Trey Young, they have recourse. You think uh, Thibodeau was snubbed for Monty Williams? No, I mean, really, you know, how could you – listen, nobody overachieved to the level that the Knicks did this year. Um, so I, I see your point, and generally speaking, in all the major sports, that's who the award goes to. But the Suns had a brilliant season. You know, Chris, you know, Chris Paul, they had their own legitimate, you know, MVP there as well. They got that, you know, him and Booker are fabulous tandem. But, you know, I mean, the, the Suns have been so consistent from from the outset. I don't have a major bone of contention with it. No, not really. Yeah, I think my argument with these awards, Bruce, uh, and, and I know Rob and I have had this discussion once before is the criteria does not match the name of the award. And I think that's the biggest gripe. The MVP is very often not given to the most valuable player. The coach of the year award is not necessarily always given to the coach who had the best coaching performance in a given season. Uh, because in my opinion, I think that it was Thibodeau. We saw this Knicks, a very similarly constructed Knicks roster last season go through the gamut and look like they were dead in the water with no direction and Thibodeau takes over. They turn into a 44 win team. Is some of that overachieving? Yes, it is. Uh, and I also think, I mean, if you take Chris Paul away from the Phoenix suns and replace him with Alfred Payton, I don't think the suns have nearly as successful as a season as, as they did. So uh, I, I think my main complaint is, is with the name of the award and the people who they choose to give it to the criteria and the title of the awards don't match. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Listen again, I, I truly believe again, they give it to the guy whose team best uh, out, uh, outdid the expect, you know, overdid the expectations. 
you know, if you look at from a strict, you know, from a logistical standpoint, you know, the Suns were setting the pace in a much stronger conference and there was a far more consistent team from the outset. So, you know, I, again, I could, given my criteria, I could take umbrage with Williams getting it over Thibodeau, but, but ultimately I, I can't say, I can't sit here and, and cry about it either because, uh, again, the Suns were, were brilliant from, from day one in a, in, a, in a far more formidable conference. So I, I think it's, uh, we'll go back to the baseball and we'll, we'll get further in depth because there's a couple different topics that I want to discuss. Um, you know, we'll start with resuming the Mets discussion. You know, obviously, they, they were in a unique situation, and we kind of spoke about this last week, Bruce, where this behemoth that was supposed to be the National League East has really not looked as good as people had foreseen it looking. Uh, no one is, is sort of running away with this division in the manner in which we thought. And the Mets were one team that were actually not meeting expectations, but were still in first place. And you just kind of had this belief that, hey, if they start clicking here, they have a golden opportunity to run away with this division. And then obviously the injury bug has just ran its way through the organization, not even just at the major league level, but in the last week and a half, Bruce, two of their top prospects, Matthew Allen, their top pitching prospect, and now today their top outfielder, Pete Crow Armstrong. Uh, undergoing surgery for a torn labrum. Matthew Allen going to be Tommy John surgery. And well, just you know, it, the good thing about Crow Armstrong is it's not his throwing. The non, the non throwing yeah, shoulder. God. That's so, big. I mean, if there's if there's a light, you know, a, 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 right. you know, I mean, thank God for that. But I, I think that I think the main thing here, Bruce, is is how expectations have changed in the course of four of about four or five days. I mean, you go from going into the weekend series against the Tampa Bay Rays being a winner of seven games in a row and saying, listen, this team can be hitting their stride right now and they can really widen the gap between them and the rest of the National League East. And now you're sitting here saying, we have to pull off a trade for a guy like Cameron Mabin just to keep our heads afloat because that's how badly the injury bug has ravaged through the club. So uh, do you foresee the Mets having a devil of a time here uh, surviving this? Or, or do you think that they can get by with the depth that they've they've filled the roster out with in the offseason? I think they get by because I think the guys they have returning are grade A top-shelf personnel. They're going to be bringing back in the coming weeks Noah Syndergaard, Carlos Carrasco, and Seth Lugo. I don't see any other of these would-be contenders bringing in that kind of welcoming wagon. The Braves look like a shot bunch. They looked like they were shot since they were up 3-1 of the Dodgers in the NLCS a year ago. And I know they've had their fair share of injuries, but their starting pitching has been putrid. Their bullpen has been worse. Other than Acuna, nobody is, is swinging the bat. What happened to the MVP last year? I mean, yeah, well, you, you know, he'll turn it around. Freeman will turn it around at some point. I mean, I yeah, can't two see. Month, two months of this? Right? I know. Well, I mean, then we, that's the same concern we got to have with Francisco Lindor now. I mean – yeah. I mean, Freeman's hitting some home runs, but his average is around the 200 range. Yeah, has been all season long. Yeah, Dans, Dans, Dansby Swanson has had a really tough time a couple seasons in a row now with the bat. And Ozuna, they give him the big contract, and now Ozuna has just completely fallen off the map. And and a big thing, Bruce, one thing which was considered a strength last year, I believe they were in the top three in the majors in bullpen or run average. And I think one big decision that was made in the offseason that's rearing his ugly head was not bringing back Shane Green and not bringing back Mark Melanson. And if you look at the San Diego Padres right now, Mark Melanson 14 for 14 in save opportunities and is fortifying that bullpen real good. 
as you look at the Braves and they continue to kind of piss leads away on a nightly night, nightly basis here. Yeah. And they did bring Shane Green back last week for whatever yes. that's going to be worth. And I, and I gotta, I have to say this too, fellas, I don't want to get off the beaten path here, but you know, the, the most devastating news for the Braves was in all likelihood, Mike Soroka and the setback that, that he yeah. sustained with his Achilles. I mean, it's hard to fathom that he's going to be a player for them this year. I don't know. I'm no doctor, but this kid who stepped up in the rotation in Soroka's stead, this Enoa, he goes out there. Oh, as boy. I said, he's been absolutely brilliant. He goes out there as a rough outing against Milwaukee the other day. Okay. So what It happens? He gets a fit of rage, frustrated, bangs his pitching hand against the bench, breaks it. He's gone for two months. And his manager comes out and he says, kind of defending his player, you know what? Nobody feels as bad as, as that kid right now. I'm sorry. You know what? And I love Brian Snicker. He's a baseball lifer. He's done a great job since, since he's been there in Atlanta. But you, you can't be that irresponsible while you're being that stupid and, and realizing, you know, where you are with this team and the predicament they're in with the injuries, I'm sorry, you simply can't allow it to happen. I mean, it goes back to the old thing with Paul O'Neill and all the, you know, fits of the, the tantrums that he threw, you know, with the water coolers and the fat rack when he was with the Yankees. And Joe Torre always said that he told O'Neill, look, this is all fine and good, but you know what? If you hurt yourself during one of these fits of rage, I'll kill you. And I know he's half kidding when he says that, but that needed to be the message that, that the manager had to come out with, you know, a, a little tough love is is certainly in order with this this lackluster group right now because even with all that has afflicted them with the injuries, they should not be playing this just pathetic brand of baseball that they have been from the from the outset of this season. And as long as that's the case, teams like the Mets and you know what, maybe the Phillies could hang in there uh, as well. I never had a lot of belief in the Nationals. I never had a lot of faith in the, uh, you know, offensive reinforcements they, they brought in there. And, and more or less that that has come home to roost. You know, the Marlins are a nice story. They're a nice young team. They got that terrific young pitching. But you know what? It's a three-dog fight in the NL East, and the Braves have no look whatsoever of a, of a team that's, anywhere close to getting on track. I think this is the Mets division to lose. I agree. And this, this, if they can, if these are games against the Braves, who, even though you've been dealt a tough hand with the injuries here, if you're the Mets, you're right, Bruce, the Braves just look so lifeless right now. This is a series that the Mets need to, to kind of put their foot down here and, and no, rally, rally around this injury bug and, and get it done. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's six games. I was looking at the standings today. It's six in the loss side. I know it's three in the standings. Yeah. Because you know, the, the Mets are still trying to catch up to everybody else in terms of overall games played, uh, you know, because of, you know, COVID and, and, and all the rain delays and, from early in the year. Um, again, it's not insurmountable by any stretch of the imagination. This is more about the Braves, though, having a look of a team that is just ready to settle in and say, this is our fate, guys. It just isn't our year. Let's regroup. Let's have at it again in 2022. That's the way it looks right now. Always subject to change. We know how long these seasons are. That's but boy, the thing. They it, look it's, like listen, dead men walking. 
It's it's like they say, it's a marathon, not a sprint. We're still only in mid-May. I, I expect the Braves to write themselves. I really, really do. There's just too much talent on that team. The only problem with them is the pitching. You know, maybe they go out and make a trade. I, you know, I don't know. But I still expect them to write themselves. And listen, everybody's in this division because these teams can't get out of their own way in this division. You know, so they can't get out of their own. And with the amount of injuries, especially with the Mets, and I know we're talking about Lugo coming back, Carrasco coming back, Syndergaard coming back. But by the time they get healthy and come back and, you know, get some games underneath them, we're probably talking, you know, mid to late June, you know, and at that time, who knows what the hell is going to happen with the injuries the Mets have suffered. You know, we don't know how long McNeil and Fordo were going to be missing. Those are two major pieces. I don't see those guys coming back in a couple of weeks. I just don't because I think I think it's two weeks maybe, and then it's another you know ten to fourteen days. Just saying, all right, let's be let's be cautious here. Let's be a little cautious. Well, Nimmo well, had Nimmo had a setback. I, who knows what the hell's going on with JD Davis? There's only so long you could last with Jose Peraza. And listen, VR's been terrific for them, but there's only so long you could last with these guys being in your lineup like this. Well, and and the, and the part that's most alarming to me. And, and it scares me a little bit because, as you said, Rob, you're talking to maybe with with all these reinforcements coming back and hopefully being healthy at the same time. You're talking late June, maybe even early July. And I saw a number today where I believe it's 35 of the Mets next 55 games are against NL East opponents. So if they falter in this next stretch here, they could run themselves out of it. And, and let's not forget, Dick, Dick, Dick killing the bullpen early. I love you guys. I know you're diehard Mets fans, but are you serious with this? You, you seriously think the Mets are going to bury themselves with their play within I, that future division? I'm not thinking they're going to well, bury it, themselves, but, but there, Bruce, but there's, you got to reasons- think about it this way, Bruce. If we're, we're sitting here, and I know it's early in the season, but you're looking at the Mets tonight, and their five through eight hitters are Tomas Nito, Jose Peraza, Khalil Lee, and Janeshwi Fargus. You're not winning very many ball games with that, and it, and it's no fault of the Mets. It's obviously you know people have gotten injured. It happens, and it's happening across baseball a lot more this season than it has in recent years. But I don't think you're winning very many ball games with that lineup. And granted, the starting pitching has been tremendous, but now you're starting to see the injuries with the pitching staff too. I mean, Degrom has the side tightness. Taiwan Walker has the side tightness. So I think there are legitimate yeah, but, concerns. But- Listen, I, I mean, I'm looking at the Conforto and McNeil absences as days, not weeks. DeGrom is back this week. Stroman has been terrific. Peterson is, you know, has been up and down. He's a kid. They have enough cover to hang in a division with a bunch of other seriously flawed teams that if they could just wait for the cavalry to come back and if, you know, Francisco Lindor starts remembering – that he's Francisco Lindor, and maybe you know Alonzo picks up a, a little bit. I mean, this is these aren't monumental asks. No, right but now. we're asking a lot of ifs here, Brucey. We're asking a lot that, of ifs yeah, right that's, now. That's, Alonzo that's, that's has looked thing. terrible too. We're but looking at a lot there, of ifs. But there are different degrees of ifs, and again, we're talking about a, a, a seriously flawed division. All these teams have bigger ifs, you know, than the Mets do. In the moment, yes, it looked. You know, you just ran through the Mets, you know, lineup tonight. I get it. They lost two guys two days ago and that, that horrendous injury, you know, to Pilar, you know, last night. But these guys are coming back in a matter of days, not weeks. Again, according to the information that I have at hand and nobody else in that division is anywhere close to being good enough to getting away from them. 
So you know what? If they're a reasonably healthy team, once we you know play the same number of games that we play now, and we're roughly a quarter of the way through the season, they're going to be in. I think they're going to be in great shape. Uh, listen, I'm still. You still I, have to be concerned. You still I have hope, to be I concerned. Hope, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. You're right but yeah. You have to be concerned. Yeah. You really do. Well, let's let's move on to your favorite team, Brucey, and that's the Yankees. And 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 they've been dealt a couple of injuries over the past week or so too. You know, we we get the news with Aaron Hicks, who has the the torn ligament in the wrist. Um, we've heard some some variations of former players who have dealt with this. I know Mark Teixeira said that it, it didn't keep him out long. He got it fixed and, and whatnot. Uh, Mark DeRosa said on MLB Network a few days ago that he dealt with this injury and, and it just completely, it, it ended his career, essentially, is what he said. So, um, you know, you're, you're hearing variations. Some people say, you know, three weeks, he'll be back. Other people are saying if he doesn't get this surgery, this could ruin his career. Uh, he wasn't hitting beforehand either. And Stanton, who's been the hottest hitter, he's now out with, with a calf injury. Uh, we're not really sure when it even occurred. Or is it was it the calf or was it the oblique with Stanton? I, I'm getting it's all these. Stanton, it was the injury. injury, Stanton. Well, what it else is new with Stanton? That's that's a yeah. normal. You know, now, now you got the guy DHing every day and he's still pulling muscles. Yeah, it's it, it, it's, it's muscular. But uh, you know, you you you've been getting by here with the, with the starting pitching and and Cole with with a bad start last night. You know, but the but the offense is not coming together and, and picking it up when the starting pitching is not there, and and that's. Contrary to what we thought the Yankees were going to do, and the most alarming part of the offense to me, Bruce, and I'm sure you'd probably agree, is looking at this outfield and the fact that you have Brett Gardner hitting under 200. You have Clint Frazier, who's hitting around a buck 50 right now. You're not getting nearly the production you need out of those outfield positions, and and they're really handcuffed because where are the reinforcements? There's really not any reinforcements or different directions you can go to get production. I mean, we keep – you know, one question I have when it comes to the Yankees – is where where are these guys who are part of this vaunted prospect pool we keep hearing about? Bruce, I've been hearing about Estevan Floriel since I was in diapers, I feel like. Where is he? If we haven't seen him yet, I want to know where this kid is because he would be an obvious reinforcement at this point when you're getting such a lack of production out of your outfielders. Correct me where, if I, where I'm wrong, Robbie, but if, if memory serves, diapers for Andrew was what, three weeks ago? <laughs> <laughs> in, fa- I, I need that. in fact, that's why we had to delay tonight's episode, Bruce. I finally learned how to use the toilet. It was monumental I, for me. I, I, I need this kid, Robbie, telling me how the Yankees overhyped their process. process. <laughs> we, Bruce, yeah. we've been saying that for how long? Since we in started other, on this in, in other news, the sky is blue. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, the, the thing that, that really gets you with, with the Yankees is even when they have their full stable, so to speak, they basically had half a lineup going all year. I mean, it's it's basically, you know, even LeMay, he hasn't been great, but he's been good. He's been okay. You know, Judge has been better than he has been bad. Uh, you know, Stanley, you, you mentioned the tear that he was on, and uh, I'm sure I'm leaving somebody else out. But, you know, they've had, you know. Oshel has been good for them. Oshel, thank you. Yeah, that was, the that's night. the guy I'm missing. But, I mean, yeah. come on, Torres has been bad. Frazier has been abysmal. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, Gardner has done nothing when they've had to throw him in there, you know, for Hicks. Hicks, as you stated earlier, Andrew, even when he was in the lineup, you know, he was he was better off when he wasn't in the lineup. I mean, it's a good news, bad news scenario for the Yankees right now. The good news is Labor Torres has uh, reportedly been cleared of, of COVID and is ready to rejoin the lineup tomorrow. The bad news is 
he's been cleared and ready to turn, return to the lineup tomorrow. <laughs> <He's> been, <laughs> I, right. I, I, I think I, I think Torres has got a lot of Francisco Lindoritis in him. I mean, do these guys remember that they're they're great players? So to me, that, that in a nutshell, that has been the real story with the Yankees has been that they have, you know, this circular lineup that they were supposed to be putting forth night in and night out hasn't been anything resembling that from the, from the, and so, you know, quick question here, Brucey, you know, you know, Bruce, Bruce always sends us, uh, you know, last couple of weeks, he sends us our email notes on, you know, what could be possible points of discussion. It's, it's so well thought out and typed out. And I mean, there isn't a mistake on it. I don't, I mean, you talk about using spell check and everything else. I mean, God bless, but you know, you, you make one point about the Yankees possibly is trading for Trevor Story or Max Scherzer? Yeah, you know what? I don't know if if how Steinbrenner is going to loosen the purse strings to do that. And I've always said it's not about the money with him. I've heard him enough times in recent years with Michael Kay on his radio show talk about time and again, how are the Rays continually able to do what they do with a fraction of the payroll that we have. Uh, to me, it's it's a personal thing with him. It's it's ego. I think he's I think he's become embarrassed, you know, by this. I, and I think that drives him. I don't think it has as much to do with the luxury tax. And by the way, guys, the CBA is up December first. We don't even know if there's going to be a luxury tax in 2022 going forward. So again, I don't think it's the price of doing business that you know, gets under now, Hal Steinbrenner's skin. It's the fact that he has grossly overspent to get a winner on the field and he's being taken to the woodshed by a team that has, you know, uh, a quarter of his payroll. Okay, now, so but, but hold on, hold on. Ask, I have one, let me just I, ask a question about that because it, it was leading me into this. Okay, maybe it's not uh, it's so much about the money or anything else. But do the Yankees have what it takes to acquire these sort of players? Do they have that sort of prospect base? Because all I know is that Esteban Florial, who's supposed to be this all-world center fielder, wasn't the guy that got called up. They brought some guy, Lemaire, up, who people were asking, where the hell did this, come, come, this kid come from? I guess they didn't know enough about him. But do the Yankees have the prospect base that we always pretty much say that they don't? In order well, to acquire I mean, guys like Trevor you Story? You almost answered person? your own question. You almost answered your I own mean, question. they don't. Robert. Lamar is not even a prospect. Lamar's 32 years old and is, has been around a little bit. Right. Listen, you know, between Davey Garcia and, you know, Florio, maybe someone wants to take a chance on Andujar, Frazier as, as change of scenery types. They probably have the wherewithal to make that kind of deal, take on all of Trevor Story's money, even for the rest of this season, to, to do a deal like that. My best guess would be, yes, the Yankees have the wherewithal to go out there and get a Trevor Story or a Max Scherzer in terms of uh, the requisite assets. Yeah, I would answer in, in the affirmative of that. And look, obviously, they could make a trade, you know, with either one of those teams and, you know, pay more in prospects and have, you know, whether it be the, the Nationals or, or, or the Rockies, pick up a lot of the money to make it more amenable in terms of the Yankees quote unquote luxury tax issue. You know, you could do something along those lines, but yeah, I think there's enough in the coffers that they can make a representative deal for a couple of guys who are going to be pricey two month rentals. 
Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Bruce, but I, from what I read, because the collective bargaining agreement is up, uh, you know, normally you pay a heftier tax if you are a repeat offender of going over the luxury tax. But from what I understand, and I could be wrong, I want you to correct me if I am, because the collective bargaining agreement is expiring, you would not be considered a repeat offender if you're, if next year is your second consecutive year going over the luxury taxes. Is that correct? I haven't heard anything to that effect. This luxury tax system is extinct once the contract is up on December 1st. So, but, if, but if there is a luxury tax, you, you would not qualify as a repeat offender because it may be a different scaling. It, like that, that, that was my understanding from what I read, but I, I could be wrong. So, I, so I, in, in effect, even if the Yankees went over that threshold to acquire talent, they would not be over it next year if a luxury tax is enacted again under the next collective bargaining agreement because they would be I different stipulations. Heard, I haven't heard or read that, and the Yankees are conducting business because they're rubbing right up against that, 200, that, that 210 number. They won't go over it. So they're acting like a team that is going to be – taxed whatever it is some 50 cents on the dollar if they go over uh at any point this year and and they desperately want to be under to reset so they could be big players for a core receiver or a matchers or or any of the other you know uh would be wondrous towns they're going to be out there so i'm not suggesting what you're saying is wrong andrew but the yankees are not acting like that the yankees right. are acting as if this system is going to be in play for 2022 Right now, the two guys you named there that, that Rob brought up before, a guy like Trevor Story, a guy like Max Scherzer, I mean, you could look at the Yankees on one side of the token and say, listen, they need an impact bat because the offense has been sleepwalking through the season. You can also look at the other side of the token and say, hey, I mean, this pitching staff was looked at as a weakness, and although it's been a strength so far, can we expect them to replicate this production over a full 162? And if you're looking at it from that lens, Scherzer might be the type of guy you'd want to target. So what, what do you think would be the more pressing need at the deadline? Let me give you as in-depth an answer to that query as I can here. No. No. No, they can't. The, 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 the Yankees starting pitching right now is grossly out kicking the coverage. They're, they're not that good. They are, you know, listen, you know, you get a middling pitcher like a Domingo Herman who you know, has his best stuff for, for a couple of starts uh, over a couple of turns and, and you're going to get these kind of results. Now on the flip side, I also don't think Jamison Tyone is going to be that bad down the stretch. He's a guy who hasn't pitched a couple of years. But I've always said this about Jordan Montgomery. If Jordan Montgomery doesn't have all his stuff, he's going to get knocked around. He's just not that good. I love the idea of having a lefty, uh, you know, pitching half the time at Yankee Stadium, and he's big, and he looks like Andy Pettit, but he doesn't pitch like He pitches more like Andy Griffith than he does like, you know, Andy Pettit. <laughs> I've told you about her. I mean, you know, Cole is, is fabulous. Um, no, I don't think they have a lot. I don't even think David Garcia – from what I've seen is, is, is that good. I don't, I just, uh, his, his stuff doesn't do a lot for me. I, I mean, I think he's a nice pitcher uh, and, and not everyone is going to have, you know, five aces or, you know, five number one types, but no, their, their lack of starting depth will come home to roost uh, at some point. But again, the last couple of nights, notwithstanding, they have been on a tremendous run this, this last month or so. You know, speaking of these Yankee pros prospects who have kind of fizzled out, I mean, what the hell has happened to Miguel Andujar? 
I mean, that's a guy that a couple years ago, if you would have asked me to take any of the New York uh, offensive players, I would have thought that Andujar was probably on that top three list in terms of prowess. He seemed like an extra base hit machine, but he had the tough injury. And now it seems ever since that injury that he hasn't been given ample opportunities, but even when he is given opportunities, he just doesn't seem to run with it. And he seems to falter. I mean, it's been such a fall from grace for him. He looks like a guy that's trying to hit a five run home run every at bat. Mm -hmm. I, I, he, he just, he goes up there and he looks the part of a guy who's got a mindset that this next at bat could be my last if I don't do something big here. You know, he just doesn't look like he'll allow himself to relax. And ultimately, if the Yankees ever want to learn if they're going to ever find that 2018 version of him again, they got to run him out there for weeks at a time. Heck, they're doing it with Clint Frazier. Frazier's been, is this on merit? I mean, Frazier's been pitiful for two months now. And I understand. Like Andujar, Frazier has a favorable history. And it's not like they, they have a lot of recourse. But to answer your you know question, if this is about Andujar and his future prospects, then you can't play him twice, sit him for two days, play him for three more, sit him for two, for two others. You got to just go out there, roll them out and play them. And, and given where they are right now, that that's probably what they're going to be forced to do. Yeah, he's just a man without a position, Andujar. I mean, listen, he had a terrific rookie year, and then he got injured. You know, setbacks, who knows? I, I mean, look, I don't know if he's the type of guy, if he gets a little hot, the Yankees look to deal him, but he's a DH. You know, he's a man without a position, really. Well, he's a, he's a DH. Yeah, I mean, look, he, he didn't remind anybody of Greg Nettles there uh, at third base, to say the least. Uh, I, I also didn't think he was as bad as he had been portrayed in certain circles. But I think Urshela is a brilliant defensive third baseman, uh, better than, than than people speak to him of. Uh, I think Urshela is tremendous. His, his defensive prowess is, is remarkable. And, I, you know, we've already talked at length about, about his offense. But, listen, this go out there and hit. They'll find a defensive play, uh, position for you. If he goes out there, Andujar, and shows he's the 30 home run, 40 double, 285, 290 hitter he was three years ago. Believe me, finding a defensive spot for him, even with Stanton clogging up uh, the, the designated hitter position from now to eternity, will not be an issue for the Yankees. I tell you, one of these storylines that you, that you brought up in this email, Bruce, and I'm so glad you brought it up, and I know a lot of Mets fans who, who like to be typical Debbie Downers. They like to be negative Nancys and they love, oh, to, they love to, guys. <laughs> they love to moan and groan <laughs> about the Jared Kellenic trade. And I'm glad you brought this up because the guy has played what three big league games so far and people are drooling over him. Like he's the second coming of Babe Ruth. And I've always maintained this thought. You can look at that trade in a vacuum and how bad it seemed, but you have to look at the end result here. And I've brought this up with the Brooklyn Nets. A lot of people are, are, will criticize the trade for James Harden, that they were mortgaging the future and they were in for a couple years of despair because of all these, these assets that they gave up. But in the end, if they win a championship, it's all good. And I've said that about the Mets here. If, if, if they compete for a championship or if they even win a championship by the grace of God and Edwin Diaz is able to lock down the final three outs in the, in the clincher, I mean that trade goes down as a win in my book. So oh, of course you have no you have to you have to pump the brakes on this here. Oh, there's no discussion if 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 it gets to that point. I, I don't I don't get this. The supposed ultra sophisticated New York media that we uh, 
live amongst with this fascination with Jared Kelenic and this being uh, the Midnight Massacre, Tom Seaver, uh, circa 1978 trade all over again, reincarnated, is just absolutely beyond absurd. I don't understand this obsession, this fascination. He's not Ken Griffey Jr. yet. As, as I said, this isn't Ken Phelps for Jay Buhner yet. Let the kid play some games before we're ready to, you know, pour more salt in the wounds of, of Brody Van Wagen in for this supposed insidious trade. I mean, yeah. And it's, and it's, it's not even just because Kellenick hit a home run in the second game. Like this has been being said since the trade was, was finalized. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't stand the reason. I mean, why do we, why do we have to go there? Is it because there's nothing else to talk? Of course there is. I, I don't, it, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't stand to reason on any level. The kid is 3000 miles away and a week ago had never played a major league game. And, uh, you know, I, I guess there are, you know, if there isn't any bad news, then there isn't any news worth, worth covering. And that, that's where, that's where this comes from because clearly there's more than just a handful of people that want to, you know, rile up the Met fan base and, 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 you know, shove some dirt in their faces about yet another, you know, just preposterously bad trade. And listen, all organizations, both good and bad, have more than, than a few of those to go around. But we're just way, way premature on, on this whole Kellenic thing. And the way he's being covered in the local media on a day-in and day-out basis, I mean, guys, let's move on to, to, to something more worthwhile than this. This is just, it's, it's a, it's a waste of time. Well, look, I, you know, you could understand the hysteria over it. I mean, I'm not going to say hysteria, maybe that's a little too dramatic to say, but it was the return that they got, especially that Diaz sucked that first season. He was better last year, actually in a shortened season. He's been good this year. He's been good. I'm not going to say he's been a dominant reliever. He's been good enough, but the problem is the return of the Cano contract that was the killer. I'm sorry. You know, you took on, you take on a contract and a guy that was already a guy that was accused and found to have, you know, taken the steroids. He was already suspended. He was going to be making 20 something million dollars a year up until the age of 42. And you didn't know if there was going to be a DH or not. So look, they got lucky this year. They actually got lucky when he got that steroid suspension because now they don't have to pay him, but they still have two more years left and a roster spot of him being on this team. Yeah, unless, again, unless, unless Cone buys him out. But I'm not making this up. This is being characterized as one of the worst trades in Mets history. I mean, and it's just, it, it's way too soon for that. I understand from the Mets end of things right now, it doesn't look great. It certainly doesn't look like it's in, in bust territory. I mean, Edwin Diaz is still the closer and having a fairly decent year for a first place team right now. It can't be all that bad. So no, Diaz, when you know, he's brought it to save situations has, has been really good, but that's the problem. He goes the extra, extra, uh, you know, he, he comes in a eighth. A lot of times he has problems, non-save situations. He has problems like that. And, you know, you could go back to the, to the, the, the to the, and you want to say it's a failed trade. Yeah. It was a failed trade, even though he didn't pan out to what everybody thought he was going to be, but the Victor Zambrano for Scott Casimir, this is what Met fans think about Bruce. We think about those types of trades. We'll go back to them trading Amos Otis. Back yeah, in the look, day for Joe yeah. Foy. I mean, uh, uh, Nolan Ryan for Jim Fergosi, you know, all these types of deals. 
And Kalanick was that sort of a kid. And he, listen, he wasn't just a top prospect with the Mets. He was a top 10 prospect in baseball. To me, the trade just never made sense because the, the Mets needed, they needed an outfielder. They needed a kid like that. Look. And to me, to bring back Robinson Cano in that deal just didn't make sense to me. It didn't make sense. Look, I'm sorry. This, this could ultimately boil down to a, to a horrible trade for the Mets. I don't know if it's going to get, again, to the Tom Seaver uh, <laughs> extent of things, or as you mentioned, Casimir for Victor Zambrano. But I'll tell you what, I look at this Mets team, and you want to talk about homegrown talent, and I look at Tom Smith, and I look at Nimmo, and I look at Conforto, and I look at the Grom and Pete Alonso. I see an awful lot of real viable high-end star homegrown talent that a lot of teams would die for. So if the Mets spit the bit on this one end of things, they had one coming to them, okay? But there are far worse crimes against baseball in terms of awful transactions amongst franchises than what we've seen so far to date with Jared Kalanick and Justin Dunn for Robinson Cano and Edwin Diaz. Let's calm down. The attention that this trade has been getting hasn't come close to being as warranted as we have seen come to the fore, uh, especially in the last handful of days since Kalanick's promotion. You know, Bruce, you brought up uh, Brian Snitker before and, and how you didn't agree with the way he handled uh, referring to, you know, his injury uh, and how he was a little bit too... Uh, light with him. Uh, one guy who was harsh with a player this afternoon that I thought was totally unwarranted. That was, that was Tony LaRussa. And, you know, I've seen a lot of people on different sides of the fence with this issue. And, and obviously if, if you're unaware of what we're talking about for all the listeners, uh, Yerwin Mercedes hit a home run in the ninth inning of last night's game. Uh, the White Sox are ahead of the twins, 15 to four Williams Astadio is in to pitch for the twins and he falls behind three. Oh, this is a position player Astadio. He's throwing 48 mile per hour pitches and, Mercedes decides to swing on three and zero, and he hits a ball 450 feet for a home run. And right off the bat, you got these baseball, you know, these, these baseball purists that are getting mad. It's an unwritten rule. You can't swing three. Oh, I think it's, I think it's tired. I think the unwritten rules are unwritten because they were too stupid to make it in the rule book. That's, that's been the way I feel about most of this stuff. But Tony LaRussa comes out today and he essentially lied to the media and I'll, I'll call him out for lying to the media by saying that Mercedes will be disciplined because he ignored a take sign. I'm going to say it flat out. There was no take sign that was given to Yerwin Mercedes. And I went back and I watched the clip a thousand times. Mercedes never even looked towards third base, nor should he have looked towards third base because if you're talking about not, not swinging on three and zero because the game is too far out of hand, then why would you be looking down to third base to take signs in a 15 to four game? So even if you planned on giving him a take sign, Mercedes is well within his right to not look down to the third baseline and to publicly humiliate your player like that and say that he's going to be disciplined because what he did was unacceptable. I just thought it was a really poor way of handling things. And I think this is a lot of the reservations that people had when bringing in a 75 year old Tony LaRusso, who has been out of the game for over a decade to come and manage this team. Now, look, it's worked out for the White Sox. They're winning ball games. They've withstood all the injuries. Luis Robert and Eloy Jimenez. I mean, they've they've been dealt a tough blow from the, from an injury standpoint too, and they've gotten by. But I, I just thought that for for Larusa to to go out and and 
essentially concoct what I believe to be a lie. I just thought it was a really, really poor way of handling things. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, honestly, this is the first I'm hearing of this, but at first blush, uh, I would say that it's, uh, that's a lot of nonsense about being given uh, a take sign as well in a game that's 15 to four in the ninth inning. Yeah, this unwritten rule of, of baseball, you could absolutely, you know, choke on. It's, it's so nauseating. That being said, don't swing 3-0. I don't care if the Twins have raised a white flag and are making a joke of things by putting a position player out there. I mean, it, it, that's all not for comedy. At some point, we know how baseball is. You have to lose many battles to win wars. You can't just go running through every pitcher on your staff every night. It sometimes becomes a necessary evil to make it a comedy act by putting a position player out there. But this, this goes back to the whole Fernando Tatis thing of a year ago up whatever it was, seven, eight runs in the eighth inning and swinging on three and all with the bases loaded. I wasn't in agreement for that, but again, I do understand the other side of it. We all know as far as the other side of the coin, the Tony La Russa scenario, uh, he's had his own uh, issues, so to speak, with the rule book and, and, uh, and understanding how the game is now being played in the 21st century. Uh, but the fact that there have been some, you know, minefields for him in the first couple of months after having a 10-year layoff, I don't think it's the end of the world. I'm not ready to characterize this as an abject failure because maybe it's taken him a little while to, to feel his oats again because the bottom line is they're the best team in the American League. They are going to run away and hide in that division. And I agree with you from this standpoint. Mercedes wouldn't be the kind of guy I'm looking to pick a fight for. Because as you mentioned, with Robert and Jimenez out of there, the reason are a big reason they are where they are in the standings are because of the performances of guys like Mercedes and the, and the kid Vaughn that they put out there as well. But that that was a, that's a very curious story. I did not see that. that that's, that's very, very interesting. But... I also agree that, yeah, there comes a point in time. In other words, when I said Snickers should have led or, or lit into Enoa, it's not just to send him a message, but to send the team as a whole the idea that this is not acceptable. Like you, you have, you've been given a gift, light a fire under him. Enoa gave Snicker that chance to have that effect on his team with that situation, I don't know why Tony La Russa has a beef with the way things are going. You know, if it ain't broken, don't fix, fix it. I, I don't know why he felt the need to go, you know, pick out this this kid who's been a great story, a 28-year-old from the independent league, having the kind of impact he is. But you know what? He's in the Hall of Fame for a reason. The game has not passed him by. But I agree with you, Andrew. That's a, that's a curious set of circumstances there. Yeah, and then you have this. Yeah, you had the Segura Girardi dust up. You had that. So who's the first manager in the NL East to get fired? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the way these guys flounder, man. I, these teams are floundering. You know, somebody's going to take a hit here at some did, point. Did you see the catch that Khalil Lee just made in right field, Rob? By the way, no, speaking of the NL East, no, I didn't. Uh, oh see. my God, unbelievable! It's Trevor May has had a rough go of it, like three, four outings in a row now. He just oh, gave up look, a home I mean, run to Freddie again, Freeman. Again, again, these guys are getting put into games every single night now. 
Yeah. His bullpen well, I, is getting I, burnt out. I had this conversation with my father, right? He was talking about how great the bullpen has been. And I said, you know what? Uh, the greatest way to mask a poor bullpen is to not have to use them. I said, and for the first month of the season, when you're having DeGrom, Stroman, Walker, and Peterson go six to seven innings per night, you're going to mask the fact that you don't have that great of a bullpen. And, and, you know, they got lucky too when even when there were some short outings, you had guys like Jacob Barnes putting up some scoreless innings, but you can't rely on that. You can't rely on that all year long. I, I thought can't. they should have been a team in play for Shane Green myself. I for mean, sure. I did it. I did as well. I, I don't know why that never transpired. I, I just yeah. don't. But Lugo, I thought they should have been a team. In, Lugo is going to have an enormous impact with you. Oh, again, I agree. He's a short let's, guy. Let's hope, he come, let's hope he comes back healthy. You know, it's going to take him a couple of weeks to get into into pitching type shape, even after he plays some 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 games down in in, in spring training down there. Well, he's been he's been throwing off a he's mound for quite a, a quite a bit, yeah. and they said they're going to stretch him out with a couple of multiple inning well, appearances. They moved him. Well, just as that's just a you know transaction type thing because they moved him over to sixty day DL. They had to because they yeah. had to get some other guys on the forty man roster. Yeah, I, I mean, it's insane. I wouldn't worry too much about the relievers starters. I agree with you. It takes them a little time, but the relievers, yeah, there could be a hiccup along the way. But, you know, everybody has those, but I wouldn't worry about Lugo. Well, one thing it's doing, it's certainly testing Louis, Louis Rojas's managing abilities because having to go to the bullpen almost every other night, you know, for, for all these openers and stuff and all these relievers coming in and out. And let's just please leave Joey Lucchese out of the equation from now on. Could we just please leave him I, out of the equation? I, I was wrong about him. I was oh, wrong my God. Him. Oh my God, that guy is god awful. I mean, he's god awful. <laughs> uh, you cannot, you cannot be a successful starting pitcher at the big league level with only a two pitch arsenal. It, it's just impossible. Yeah, and but he's when, not even good for one inning. I mean, even in one inning, he's terrible. Yeah, I mean, he had he had one good appearance against the Diamondbacks. Besides that, and and there's a big thing going around Twitter, and I I don't know how the Mets front office and coaching staff has not picked up on this, but some crazed Mets fan like clearly pointed out how much different Lucchese's release point is on his fastball as opposed to his uh, curve, he calls it. It's a, it's a curveball with a change-up grip. Uh, to me, uh, what are you, Rick Vaughn from Major League, making up names for your own pitches? I think you need to get your ERA below 12 before you can start naming your pitches. But someone pointed out, I mean, the release point is just totally different, so he's tipping pitches, and it, the, the only thing worse than tipping your pitches, Bruce, is tipping your pitches when you only have two of them. Yeah. Listen, you know, he, he's he's a six-starter, long reliever type. You know, the, the Mets have been in dire straits with, with the injuries, and they've had to, you know, force him into situations that, you know, otherwise you kind of look at him as a break glass in case of emergency kind of guy. And you know what? What he's been called upon, clearly he hasn't been, he hasn't been up to the task. But you could say that about – a lot of other guys on that roster that have far greater pedigrees attached to them. If Joey Lucchese is your biggest problem, you're you're in pretty good you're in pretty good stead. So I mean, I, the Mets the Mets didn't come into this you know, you know depth wasn't one of those things that you looked at and said you know what in terms of their everyday players a lot of depth in terms of their pitching. It left a little to be desired, but I'll tell you what, everything that Joey Lucchese hasn't been, Taiwan Walker has been. He has been absolutely terrific. He has yep. been a godsend. Yep. A lot of people raised an eyebrow when the Mets forked over a multi-year deal to him 
towards the tail end of spring training. And so far, he has shut a lot of people up. And guys like him and Stroman, I know Stroman wasn't so great his last time out, but they have been godsends uh, to that Mets rotation. Well, one thing with Walker, and it, it, it was puzzling to me, is that uh, people thought that he was like a, a low-end starting pitcher. I never felt that way about Walker. I always thought that Walker was, was well. He not, had injuries, a, but he was you know not a top-flight pitcher. But I thought he was a really good pitcher who just has failed pitcher. to stay healthy. He's just failed yeah. to stay healthy yeah. over his career. He's, he's had multiple arm surgeries. He's missed. He's missed a lot of time in the past couple seasons. All right, so when you know healthy, what? I think, he's good. I, I think it's time to move on to the NFL, boys. Now, Brucey, you talked about the scheduling conflicts, maybe for Week One. Uh, some conference preview games you're thinking. You got Sam Donald out of the gate going against his old team, the New York Jets. Do you think somebody's scheduling for week one has something to do with last year and nobody being in the stadiums where they just want to build up that excitement again for the NFL? They don't need it. They don't need to do that. They don't don't need to do it, but you're going to get fans in the stands this year and they just want to – they want to have week one. They want to blow it out the box with week one as, as better than they ever have before. I think they overdid it. I think they got too cute here. They almost acted like they had to make up for something. I mean, Cleveland, Kansas City, that's one of your games of the year. I don't want that opening day. Cowboys, Buccaneers, that very well could be your NFC championship game. I know that's asking a lot for a Dallas Cowboys franchise that in three decades hasn't made it that far. But still, I don't want to see that, you know, opening night. I'm not suggesting you have to have, you know – one would be power against them, you know, a Mary sisters of the poor, you know, a, across the landscape. I just think that so many, there are so many great, great matchups in week one. I just think it's, I, I, I thought it was just overdone a little bit as far, at least as far as week one is concerned. Yeah. I, I wasn't, you know, that that's not me. I want to not just for my team, but overall, I'm just happy to have football back. I don't care who's playing who. I don't need all these these great epic encounters in one fell swoop right out of the gate. And the NFL the fact, gave us that in spades week one. You, you know what bothered me a little bit? That they really didn't give primetime games to the Jaguars. I, I'm sorry. With Urban Meyer there, Trevor Lawrence there, there's some excitement going on over there. You couldn't give this team a couple of primetime games? Well, if only Tim Tebow would have signed before the schedule. <laughs> yeah. Wait, I mean, wait a second. So, <laughs> so do, do we not – have the highly anticipated Titans versus Jaguars Thursday night game this yeah, year. Yeah, Thursday night have. game, but you know I, that's all I, we that's all we have. I, we no, that every single I, year. Think, I think they're long. I think it's actually against Cincinnati. I mean, if I if I stand, I could you know eventually have to stand corrected on that. But, but yeah, I know it's usually a Thursday nighter between Tennessee and Jacksonville. But and, and Jacksonville wears those hideous mustard looking jerseys because oh they wear God. the color I mean, rushes on but Thursday. You know, night. not for nothing. <laughs> I, I would I'd like to see Trevor Lawrence. I want to see, you know, I, I'm fascinated by the whole urban urban Maya uh, coming to the NFL. Also, I want to see these guys in prime time. I, these are newbies to me. These are newbies. You know, not everybody watched Jacksonville over the last couple of years. Not too many people, you know, they didn't have a good team. But now all of a sudden with Travis Etienne, and now you got Trevor Lawrence there and Urban Meyer there. And if you want, let's say maybe Tim Tebow makes the team. So, but, you know, this could be a pretty fun team to watch, in my opinion. Bruce. I think, you know what, I, I don't think much has changed in terms of the philosophy with these national TV games. I mean, I all think we got, we got the Cowboys be... on how many times? I think they got eight primetime games. Could we enough with the Cowboys? It's got to be one of two things, Robbie. Either got to be rejected to be really good, 
have been have already been really good, or you better be a brand name franchise. But they won one playoff game in twenty five freaking and, years. It's enough gotta, for them already. And I got to tell you, every, too, Rob, every year they get projected to be a top team, a top team, and every single year they shit the bed. It, well, let, let's let's call a spade a spade too. Uh, <laughs> the America's team narrative is very very overstated because every time the Green Bay Packers, every time the Pittsburgh Steelers, every time the Raiders play in Dallas, that stadium is invaded by the opposition. So it's not America's team. There's there's the big franchises that have the fan bases that travel and, and, and outnumber those Cowboys fans. So I always get a kick out of that America's team. It's America's team maybe because you force them onto America by giving them a primetime game every week. It, it's just, I tell you, nauseating really well, one thing one thing that really grinded your gears too rob was that the giants got a got a good number of primetime games but they're on the road for every single one of them not, not, one, a, not, not one, one home primetime game, game. Yeah. not one home game all three games primetime in kansas city against mahomes in tampa with brady right and then the third game was in washington i, I was mean you know I, I was surprised to hear one of the chief decision makers howard katz with regards to the nfl the schedule making was on with chris russo on his radio show the other day, and he he actually, I don't know if he said it with a straight face or not because it was radio, but he actually said, we expect great things for the Giants this year. We circled these games to put the Giants on national TV because we think they're ready to be that kind of team this year because they have a quarterback who's quote-unquote maturing and Barkley's coming back. So they were actually looking for reasons to give – uh, the Giants a spotlight, which I find somewhat heartening. But a Vegas lot isn't giving the Giants a lot of love here. The Ve- Vegas is not giving the Giants a lot no, of love right oh, now. Oh, no, no, no. And it is, is it all because of the quarterback, guys? Is it all oh, because absolutely. of the quarterback? That's got to be the only reason. I mean, they were one of the most active teams in the offseason as far as free agency was concerned, even though they were right up against the cap and we didn't think that there was any, any maneuverability. And from all accounts, not just us and our good friend Tommy, I mean, the media pundits as well are all in agreement that they had a very, very good draft and accumulated a lot of assets along the way to kind of further reinforce that maneuverability in case things go south. So the Giants are in a really good spot. But as you pointed out to us during the week, Bruce, I mean, you have you have the Denver Broncos who signed to, they, they, they traded for Teddy Bridgewater, whether that's to be the starting quarterback or just a locker room presence, we don't know. The other quarterback on the roster is Drew Locke, who for all intents and purposes, looks like he played himself out of the starting job. And then you got uh, Brett Rippon, who he played one Thursday night game against the lowly Jets. He threw four interceptions, did everything in his power to throw the game away. And none of these are really capable quarterbacks to warrant Denver having a higher win total than, than the New York Giants coming into the season. So they're not getting a lot of love, but yeah, they're usually on the money here. It's, it, it's, it's raising a lot of eyebrows and either every, the, the general public is going to make Vegas look really stupid or Vegas is going to make the general public look really stupid. Well, their quarterback situation, notwithstanding, it is a talented roster, but they were five and 11 a year ago. They're traveling across the country week one and they're a favorite. So what does that suggest? Vegas thinks about what the night, what the nation thinks about the Giants' prospects. Their, their season win total, as, Bruce, is set at eight and a half. The Broncos, eight and a half. Yeah. Uh, do you with that with the current quarterback room? I mean, they don't have Aaron Rodgers yet. We've been talking about Denver as a potential destination for Aaron Rodgers here, but Aaron Rodgers is not on the roster yet. I mean, can you envision a scenario in which this team is winning nine games, playing in a division with Patrick Mahomes, playing in a division with Justin Herbert and a much improved yeah. Chargers roster who had a really good draft? 
and the Raiders who finished with a better record than Denver did last season. Where, where's the situation where they're winning nine games? I don't yeah. see it. The AFC West is, is, is terrific. Uh, the defense is stout. Got a terrific defense. We know they got a defensive minded head coach and, and Vic Fangio. Uh, but yeah, in, in a, a sport that is defined by who your quarterback is, that that's kind of hard to look at that team and say, they're any better than the last place team. Again, albeit in a, in a very good now, division. How, how much are they is favored that, is by that against the Giants? Better than the Giant roster? I mean, is, is Denver's roster better than the Giants roster, or are they just strictly going by what their schedule looks like? Because I'll tell you the truth, I don't look at schedules. I don't look at strength of schedules in the beginning of the season because you never know when it comes up to that week. You don't know what teams you're playing, what sort of injuries they might have, or you know anything could happen during the course of a season where it's going to change the whole trajectory of the schedule and who you play and who might be good at the beginning in week one, but might not be as good in week 10. I mean, you know, let's, let's face it. That's just the way it goes. But is the Denver roster that much better than the Giants roster? This is what you got to look at in my opinion. And I, I, you know, you hear these people who, who either work as bookmakers in Vegas or people who are professional gamblers, and they basically give you a rundown of how these, you know, how they, they come up with these spreads and essentially, when you're talking about a packed house, normal circumstances with a normal crowd, which by football season, God willing, we're at 100% capacity. I don't see a reason why we, why we can't be, especially with the vaccine being rolled out at the rate it is and, and the percentage of the population that's been vaccinated. But you're talking about a home field advantage under normal circumstances, basically giving a three-point swing to the spread. And so if you're talking about two even teams – playing each other whoever the home team is is going to be a three-point favorite because of that home field you're talking about the broncos opening as a one-point favorite on the road in metlife so so you're telling me that that denver would would essentially be a four and a half point they're four and a half points better than the giants if they're playing at mile high i, well, I just don't see that they're that because the verdict is in uh that while we are taking more of a measured approach of well, let's wait and see with regards the guy under center for the Giants, Vegas, and the nation as a whole has made their final determination that Daniel Jones is an abject failure and there will never be anything more than that, that he is a turnover machine uh, and that the Giants will never get anywhere as long as he's uh, uh, calling the signals out of the huddle. That's why. I, I can't I can't say it any more simplistically than that. Uh, we've talked about this seemingly on every show, so I'm not going to belabor it again. But very few prospects have been treated uncharacteristically unfair as the Giants' soon-to-be third-year signal caller. And let me throw this out to you, okay? And and this goes to a lot of the guys that I listen to that I respect who do national shows. Uh, on satellite radio, where it's okay to look at trends for certain guys, say, like Dwayne Haskins coming in the last year. Oh, he was so great his last four games. I think he's ready to take that step. And Carson Wentz, how brilliant he was the final month of 2019 with that ravaged skill position group that he had in Philadelphia and that the Eagles beat all those teams down the stretch and still made the playoffs. So it's okay to look at how they trended down the stretch in years that left a lot to be desired. So again, the first words out of everybody's mouth when critiquing Daniel Jones are about what? The turnovers. 
He is a turnover machine. So let me throw this out at you because God knows I got a lot of time on my hands these days. I looked this up. The last eight games of the Giants season in which Daniel Jones played in six because of the hamstring injury, you know how many turnovers he had? I think he had three. one or three. three. Yeah, he didn't. It was minimal. It, yeah. It, three yeah. in the six games. One was in that Arizona game that he had no business taking the field for because he was playing on one leg, and that was mm-hmm. clear. And the other was, as we saw in the win-or-go-home scenario against the Cowboys in Week 17, that was the Evan Ingram special. Wide open, hands are up, tips the ball in the air, it gets intercepted. The man had one legit turnover in his final six games played. So those trends get ignored. If Bruce, you, you know what happens? Run- you get labeled early in the career. You get labeled, and that's it. He that kid is labeled, and it doesn't matter. He could he could go he could go with no turnovers the first five games of the season. He'll have a two pick game, and all of a sudden, Danny turnovers is back. Uh, Danny Apple turnovers is back. It, he's labeled, labeled. Well, you're you're talking about two quarterbacks in the same same area in New York City. One of them turnover machine. The other one who has turned the ball over at, at a similar rate over the past two seasons is being looked at as a quarterback who is still going to be a top five quarterback in this league. He was just in the wrong situation. I and mean, it's, it's this. These are the narratives that get put out here by the big shots in the media. And Bruce is exactly right. I mean, they pick their they pick their battles with certain guys. They are just defenders to the max of other guys. And it's. It, they sound like fools when they do it. I, I listen, I'm not I'm not gonna gonna sit on this podcast and tell you that Daniel Jones is gonna be next Joe Montana. For all we know, Bruce could be hopping on us hopping on with an episode after next football season, and we could be talking about who the Giants are going to be targeting in the draft because Daniel Jones fell on his face. So we're not suggesting that this, this kid is a, a surefire Hall of Famer, but you got to at least give him a chance. And this narrative that he is an abject failure is just so far off from being being truthful and and it's and it's apparent that that's the way that the majority of of media pundits feel and that's the way that vegas feels and you see it with those lines i mean this is another thing that 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 kind of boggles my mind so i i talked before bruce about that three-point spread that kind of goes in a team's favor if they have the home field advantage this there's already a line open for week two and, and this is on FanDuel. week two in washington the Washington football team is a three-point favorite over the Giants. So essentially what you're saying is those two teams are evenly matched and because Washington is the home team, they get the three points in their favor. So you're telling me the Giants are closer to the to the Washington football team than they are to the Broncos. Like The Broncos are a better team than both the Giants and the Washington football team. I, I just don't see that. Me. I just know, don't see history, it. Maybe recent history comes into play because – the one team, as abysmal as the Giants have been these last handful of years, the one team they've had relative success against has been the Washington football team. Right. They, 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 they seemingly have beaten them, uh, you know, twice a year. For I can't even remember the last time Washington beat, beat the Giants. I, I'm surprised to hear that. I know the Giants are only favored in something like five of their 17 games, but that's a stark contrast with regards to how the Giants are viewed nationally versus how they're looked at locally. Locally, every the Giants are the it team. The Giants are the now team. The Giants are the, you know, ready to turn the, the corner yeah. outfit. The, the, the national pundits see the Giants through a far different lens. Well, look, they've seen the Knicks through a far different lens, too, and they got that 
historically wrong. So yeah, let's let's see what happens with that because you know I I, I was shocked and not that I care because I, I don't even care what the hell the win totals are, what they what they predict and what because again it's all relative to me. It's bullshit as far as I'm concerned because again when you see a team like Denver at eight and a half and and the Giants at five and a half in some places six, I, I said okay so. They were at five and a half, six last year. They had a brand new coach, brand new coaching staff. They had a second year quarterback. They didn't have the talent that they have on their roster now. They didn't have any OTAs or basically any training camps to go through. And you're still saying it's still going to be a six win team. I mean, or you know what I mean? I, I don't under, I just don't get it. I don't get it. But I, you don't get the rationale behind it. I just don't get the rationale. Yeah. I, and I think a lot of times it's a bias towards against the Giants. That's what it is. I swear to God. You know, and we now, go what is back, the, what is the Jets total at? I think the Jets were at like three or four. I think they were a little high. The Jets were a little. I thought the Jets. I thought the Jets were like. I, well, put it this way: the Jets, the Jets are favored to have the overall number one pick next year. Put it that way. Really? Yes. Not Houston. That's something. That's something I had I had heard on one of the NFL radio stations. During think the, the week, Jets are worse than Houston and Detroit. That they were they were projected to have the number one overall pick next year. Now that might that might have to do with strength of schedule. Also, I mean, I'd have to but look again, at all the teams, you, but you still, the schedule is difficult. You're going off of last year's games. I mean, you know, who, again, who who's to say what's going to happen in week five and week six? Who's to say that yeah. the Giants don't go play the Chiefs and all of a sudden Mahomes is out with a with a sprained ankle? You know, who knows? You don't, you just don't yeah. know. So it's a week to week basis, but it leads me, I, I want to get into this because, you know, we're starting to see a little bit of, of some news on, on Deshaun Watson here. And one thing I, I realized that I found out was that all 22 victims, it's consolidated into one case. These aren't 22 separate cases here. Yeah. They're going to be, they're going to be consolidated into one case. So with that being said, again, there's going to be a payment made. More than likely, there's going to be a breakthrough in this year, probably over the next couple of weeks where payment are made. And more likely, they're talking to Sean Watson, maybe getting a four-game suspension, which now kind of opens up the fact that maybe he can still get dealt here. Well, if you're talking about a one one case as opposed to 22, that makes it right. inordinately easier to reach a settlement. I, I did not know that myself until I read that the other day when I started reading up on the case a little bit. And I said, wow, okay. This makes it a lot easier for him, actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I mean it, it, it opens it, up. It opens up the same situation with the same kind of teams that have always been rumored to be in the mix, right, Bruce? And and at the top of that list, according to Deanna Rossini at ESPN, the Philadelphia Eagles, Eagles may or may not have a need at that position. We'll see about Jalen Hurts, but you know what? If it's a, a choice between Jalen Hurts and Deshaun Watson, there isn't much of a discussion to be had there. The, the Eagles have all the requisite artillery. You have to have to make that kind of deal. They got three number one draft picks next year alone. Uh, so they're right now the leader in the clubhouse, so to speak, if and when he is marketed. And because of all the reasons you guys just uh, put out there, it looks like a resolution of this thing is going to happen sooner rather than later. I don't want to characterize something like this as being somewhat favorable, <laughs> uh, but this should fall favorably in line as far as Deshaun Watson's prospects for playing in 2021 are concerned. And yeah, it sounds like that even the four game suspension that is forthcoming, notwithstanding that he very well is going to be, uh, you know, wearing a different uniform 
at the outset of the season because it doesn't sound like, or at least reading the tea leaves, from what I understand, the Texans aren't nearly as hell-bent on keeping Deshaun Watson as they were prior to all these alleged uh, improprieties coming to the fore. Well, the thing that, that stands out to me too, Bruce, is that all these teams that were rumored to be in the mix to potentially make a move for Watson, I mean, the draft has come and gone, and none of those teams have further fortified their quarterback room. So all those same teams are in the same boat where there's not a lot of certainty surrounding their quarterbacks, and they could be in play to make a move. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, Washington is a, is a team that is, is you know, supposedly in the mix here. Um, I mean, I heard Carolina was mentioned as part of this report as well. Denver, uh, certainly. We know that they're trying to wait out this Aaron Rodgers thing. So, listen, you know, Michael Vick got his second chance, did his prison time, served his suspension, came back, obviously came back with the said Philadelphia Eagles. There's no reason to believe that Deshaun Watson, especially given where he is at his career at 25 years old, and his wondrous talents is not going to be afforded the same, uh, you know, type of a situation himself. And yeah, I mean, it, it, it looks like, you know, this is something that needs to be uh, highlighted a little bit more than it has been. There's been so much radio silence on this. I mean, nobody is talking to Sean Watson at all anywhere, really. I mean, you have to, you know, really dig to find any kind of, you know, inkling of anything regarding Deshaun Watson and his and his playing prospects for 2021 and there was this report over the weekend from ESPN and it's 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 very interesting and it's certainly certainly landscape altering if you know what happens ultimately goes down as is being suggested yeah okay so boys gun to your head week one NFL in fact we'll go week one preseason what uniform is Deshaun Watson wearing? And he'll probably be suspended, but what organization will he be with at that point? I think the Eagles will pull out every stop to bring in. They have the draft capital. And they have, you know, what some people seem to be an exciting quarterback that they could flip back to the Texans as well. Well, that's actually that's actually one thing I failed to realize before, Rob, is that, yeah, these teams that were in the mix for Watson, they, they haven't addressed their quarterback room. But one team like the Dolphins in particular, they had that draft capital that they could part with in this year's draft. And now that that draft has come and gone, they don't necessarily possess the ammo to be able to facilitate a trade anymore. So that might take them out of the mix. You know, they had that number three pick that was coveted and actually belonged to the Houston Texans before they traded it away. Rob, I thought you brought up a great point there. They also have a quarterback that they could send back. I know that the new coach there in Houston is talking up Davis Mills left and right, but yeah, you could see Houston being very interested in somewhat of a Deshaun Watson light type prospect, which Jalen Hurts would be going in the other direction. And I also think the Eagles are motivated from the standpoint that they realize they forfeited a prime premier talent franchise quarterback in Carson Wentz. And there's still a lot of hard feelings, I'm sure, within that facility, amongst that fan base, about jettisoning Wentz. And I think that bringing in a guy like Watson would go a long way, if not 
totally alleviate those harsh feelings. Here's one to kind of wrap your mind around. Is, is there a scenario? I, I haven't, this just came to the top of my head. So if this is off base, I mean, forgive me. I'm just kind of brainstorming in the moment here. Is there a scenario in which the Green Bay Packers deal Jordan Love and Aaron Rodgers and trying to make a move for Deshaun Watson? Oh, no. God, there's no way. I, that would be so – I mean, that's I mean, almost, Jordan, that's Jordan almost like Love, a fantasy – that's like Jordan, a fantasy football type trade. <laughs> Jordan Love would be the type of quarterback that you would think that, that would pique the interest of the Texans in return, but you also would have to facilitate an Aaron Rodgers trade, and that would probably make it unlikely that you're making Aaron, two Aaron, separate Aaron. quarterback trades, but – you're talking well, about but here's the, here's the thing. The Eagles have no, the Aaron Rodgers, not the Houston. No, not Aaron Rodgers to Houston, but Jordan Love would be the type of guy that Houston it might pique their interest. And then you could facilitate a second trade with Aaron Rodgers if he ultimately continues to try to force his way out Look, of there. If the, if the Andrew, Eagles, I, if I the Eagles would, give up Hurts and those three number one picks. Well, yeah, I'm not I, saying I, that the Packers have the ammo to be able to top that deal, but it's just something that I brainstormed yeah. off the top of my head. They I don't. mean, that, that would be something, huh? And then, But the next positive thing I hear or read about Jordan Love, as far as his NFL tenure is concerned, would be the first. Well, uh, well yeah, we I, had this I, discussion last week. Yeah. Well, how about if you're Jordan Love? You want to talk about your all-time lose-lose propositions because he's fried in either situation. Once he... If he ends up taking the the mantle from Rodgers, he's screwed on any number of levels, not the least of which he probably isn't ready to play, and he's taking over for an iconic figure. Same thing happens if he goes to Houston. I mean, it's <laughs> the, the the poor kid can't can't catch a break. I I just don't get the idea that the rest of the league looks at Jordan Love anywhere in the same light that the Packers do. I, I just don't get that. I don't know. I just don't. There isn't anything that suggests to me that that's the case. Yeah, I, I need you, the thought around the league was was kind of the same, right? I mean, it it wasn't so much that we were surprised that the Packers moved up and selected Jordan Love, although that did surprise us. It surprised us in general that a team that any team moved up to take Jordan Love in the slot in which he was taken there in the first round. So I think you might be right. I mean, what kind of weight does Jordan Love's name carry within NFL circles as it pertains to being a franchise-type quarterback moving forward? Yeah, not a lot. I mean, again, you know, we talked about this last week. Uh, I don't remember if it was the coach or the GM who said he's got a long way to go. Uh, You know, and in the meantime, the Packers are signing every veteran quarterback, including Blake Bortles, you know, under the sun, I mean, is that an indication of, of what they think of Jordan Love's readiness at this point? I mean, also, and listen, that's okay, too. I don't, I'm not going to characterize the guy as a bust. I, I at least have to see a play before we go there. And I don't nearly have the issues with the Packers that a lot of people, other people do with regards to their decision to go draft a quarterback while, Aaron Rodgers is still in place. I mean, that's how Aaron Rodgers got to Green Bay. I think the whole thing is utterly ridiculous. But be that as it may, the Packers aren't giving anyone any idea that Jordan Love is the answer to the affirmative to anybody's quarterback issues in terms of starting prospects to concern in 2021. Yeah, and and I think I think you would if you had any sort of confidence in Jordan Love, you would probably hold that chip as as a as a leverage tool 
moving forward. And, and so maybe you would even try to bluff it. If even if you didn't have confidence, you'd uh, at least try to play it off that way. If you're trying to facilitate a trade for Rogers, it's, they must not have any faith in him. Uh, it's tough to cut. It's tough to keep those kind of secrets in this world. Yeah. Andrew. I mean, everybody is seeing these guys all the time and people are talking and Instagramming and Facebooking. It, it, it's just, that's not as easy to do nowadays as it was in yesteryear they know if you could play and they know if you can't well look i mean if if that's if that's the case and this kid is a bust then what aaron Rodgers said about the general manager has to come to fruition he needs to be fired i'm sorry but that has nothing to do with what Aaron no, Rodgers it, it, says. It does because bust. then it's a it's it was a wasted first round pick that they actually gave up more draft capital to get, and now this kid's sitting here now for a third year, and obviously, okay, again, there's Aaron Rodgers there in front of him. But why the hell, if you had no plans for this kid, why the hell would you draft him? Yeah, but there's an avalanche of momentum out there with this narrative that even if Jordan Love is the next great Green Bay Packer quarterback. It was still wrong and an affront to Aaron Rodgers to even draft the guy when they in his subsequent replacement when they could have addressed you know any other oh. needs any other uh, you know uh, needs let alone a starting wide receiver and I just don't understand that logic anywhere but especially a place in Green Bay when they drafted a guy in Aaron Rodgers who sat for three years before he got his shot to take over for a, an iconic franchise quarterback. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's the, that's the pot calling the kettle black. I'm sorry, boys. Look it at is. it from this way though. Aaron Rodgers was incensed when they drafted Jordan love and, and you could certainly understand it. I mean, there is a business side of things and teams do plan for the future, but uh, you know, you can understand where the quarterback is coming from that they drafted his replacement when you felt like they could have got a capable player to fuel, fuel your championship run. But I mean, let's think about it. This kind of came out of nowhere with Aaron Rodgers. Do you think maybe some of it was kind of festering for a while because they drafted Jordan Love? And now that Aaron Rodgers has a front row seat and can clearly see that there is no growth, he's even more incensed about that move. And that's what ultimately led to him is, you know, greasing the skids to get out. Yeah, you know what? No, I don't think so, Andrew. I think I think Aaron Rodgers is taking all this far too personally. I think he thinks he should be treated like one who walks on water and should be catered to at every level by any means possible at every turn. And that's simply, no, it doesn't work that way. Yes, to an extent, he is a superstar. He gets treated differently and more special than anybody else. I'm not suggesting that that's not how it works in the real world. He's being paid accordingly. They are making those, you know, any number of concessions to his greatness and his import to the franchise. But the franchise itself also has the responsibility of thinking about his existence post Aaron Rodgers. And that's what this move was was all about. And the fact why Aaron Rodgers can't understand that and is taking this to the extreme that he has, to me, is not just right. And it's as 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 Ron Wolf, the former great Packer GM, said today on, on national radio, the Hall of Famer, 
he's acting like the ultimate diva here. He's oh wrong. no, there's there's no doubt that he's acting acting like a diva, and I'm not necessarily condoning the way he's acting, but I just wonder if that was was the the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of him trying to get his way out of there. Oh, I don't think there's any question. I I think I think that what's going on with Aaron Rodgers now has the, this has been was all formulated the second Jordan Love was drafted a year ago. That, that, you and, know, and maybe and maybe what I'm saying is that his lack of growth has even expedited that that process of trying to get out because you, you clearly thought it was the wrong move in the moment. And now we're seeing that this kid can't even show any signs of being a franchise quarterback with the practice reps he's well, been getting. And well, it gets what, you even more infuriated. What Rogers is saying is how dare you, how dare you think about life after me when I'm playing at the level that I'm playing at? Right. How could you possibly even entertain the idea of replacing me? When the fact of the matter is he damn well knows that as long as he is playing at this level, he'll never be replaced, regardless of how great Jordan Love may look on seven and seven drills in practice. Come on. I mean, Rob, are you watching this? That, that is like the Jerry's Familia special right of there. Of course. Bro broken bat single, game, Marcelo Ozuna. He went 2-0 oh right away in a, on, on Acuna. I mean, you just seen it happening. And that's the and most the, Jerry's familiar statistic of all time. He's faced he, Ronald Acuna two, five times, and it's five, just five put walks. Two and on the, just put 2-0 as the count whenever this guy comes in from the bullpen. It's, you know, it's a, it's a lock with this guy. But, you know, all right, so we go back to that. All right, so Aaron Rodgers is a packet then. Yeah, I don't think – I don't – I'm sticking by my guns. I don't think they're moving them. I think that they realize, you know, that this is still about – Winning championships, especially in storied, especially storied places like Green Bay, Wisconsin. And they know that they don't have any shot at that if well, Aaron Rodgers is wearing another uniform in but 2021. there's a caveat. Just because he's not wearing another uniform does not mean he will be wearing a Packers uniform. You think do he's going to retire? Think he was, he's not retired. That guy's not Do you think retired. he's wearing a Packers uniform is the I do. question? Yes. Yeah? I do not. I don't think they're moving him. I, I think this is rectifiable. I think that, listen, Aaron Rodgers is, is more in the wrong than the Packers are, but the Packers aren't blameless here either. Uh, you know, when I suggested that we live in a world where we have to break our backs to appease our superstars, I wasn't, that uh, this wasn't, you know, uh, coach speak, but the Packers obligation is too strong a word. They should have been smart enough to clue Aaron Rodgers on what their thought process was before making the move to draft Jordan Love as opposed to blindsiding Rodgers with the news, which is what happened. You know, there was, there was one, uh, one last baseball story that I wanted to get to, and, and part of the reason I wanted to get to it was just because we spent a lot of time talking about it last week, and that was the whole Albert Pujols situation with the Angels, and he finally has a new home, albeit in the same city. He's with the Los Angeles Dodgers now. And, you know, I, I was listening to your old partner in crime, Chris Russo, today, Bruce, and, and he was talking with Brian Kenny about the, the viability of Albert Pujols uh, producing and being a mainstay for the Dodgers. And while they've been ravaged with injury and it, they just continue to pile on, now Corey Seager is going to be out a, a long time now. And their depth pieces off the bench that have produced all season long, Edwin Rios and, and Zach McKinstry, they're, they're all – falling with the injury bug but 
we all expect the Dodgers, even though they've been struggling out of the gate, they're going to probably win a hundred games. They're going to get the number one seed in all the national league. They're going to be a playoff team. And, and your old buddy dog, Bruce was, was basically saying he doesn't envision a scenario in which Albert Pujols, when people are back healthy, even cracks this postseason roster. And I, I got to tell you, I agree. So was there really not that much interest for him out there that he resorted to going to this scenario in which he, he might not be a playoff contributor? I was surprised that I read as much about the level of interest there was in the guy. I think he's shot. The guy hasn't been, a, the guy hasn't, hasn't been good for a couple of years. I know it's blasphemous to say about as, as brilliant and, and as wonderful a guy and player as Albert Pujols is. But the fact of the matter is, you know, Mother Nature is, is undefeated and it's, it's, it's caught up to, you know, Father Time. I'm throwing every analogy I can think under the sun at you right here. Uh, <laughs> caught up with, with Pujols uh, a long, long time ago. And I agree. I don't, I don't think there's much there. I didn't see the fit with the Dodgers. I know they're struggling mightily against left-handed pitching. That was the motivation here. The, the thought process is that Pujols could at least be halfway decent against Southpaws. But no, when the Dodgers are right, there isn't a place for Albert Pujols uh, on this roster. Not, you know, yeah, they'll always pinch hit for the pitcher, but you're not throwing Albert Pujols up there in a big spot against, uh, you know, one of these ace type relievers. That's uh, Albert Pujols isn't ready for that anymore. I tell you, I think that could be a landing spot for Trevor Story there. I swear to God. Seeker comes back, they move Dodgers? him over to second base. I didn't, you know, listen, there were all those rumors about Nolan Arana going there. Yeah. And one of the primary reasons that never came to fruition is that, you know what, the Rockies didn't want to stare at him 19 times a year. So, uh, now granted, this is, a, this is a little bit of a, a different situation. You know, it's only two months. It's not the next eight years. Certainly the Dodgers have a wherewithal to resign story and let Seager walk at the end of the year, who's also going to be a free agent. Uh, those those type of deals, I, I wouldn't say are impossible. I just don't think that they're going to be lacking for suitors for Trevor Story at the trade deadline. And I think there will be at least as many teams as motivated as the Dodgers to make something like that happen and all things being equal. The Rockies are not going to help the, the Dodgers out before some of the other alternatives that will be in hand. Do, do you think that Trevor Story is is the class of uh, of this entire shortstop upcoming free agent class by a long shot, or do you, do you think that these guys are all kind of bunched together here? Because I got to tell you, it has nothing to do with Coors Field either, and I think that's that's a thing that's a bit overstated too. But I, I, Story has just never really impressed me as that type of all world shortstop. I, well, I don't know, you know what, what it is. You're you're right in that it's overstated. Because I always made a huge deal out of Nolan Arenado, and you look at his splits from cores and, and away, and they were distinct. And so far, his first two months in St. Louis, he's poo-pooing all of that. So, I mean, I could sit here and play the fool again and suggest, hey, look at Trevor Story, home and away, not the same player, away from Coors Field that he is uh, a mile above altitude. But, I mean, obviously – that's, that's clearly becoming too basic. I think you have to let these players get out of that environment for an elongated period of time before you make that determination that they can't play outside of those conditions. Um, to answer your question, with Lindor obviously already locked up, 
I, I kind of like Seager. I know there's a lot of talk about Seager not even staying at shortstop as far as his long-range future is concerned, that he's so big they might have to move him over to third base. I don't know. I love I love Seager. I, I, I still may favor him a little bit, but... I tell you, I think Seager would be perfect for the Yankees. I oh, really you do. know, that's, that's, oh, left my, that's bat, my line of kidding me? too. Perfect. He's he's a perfect fit. Perfect. I could see him being a Yankee next year. But really what could. doesn't what but what doesn't Story do exceptionally well? He's a phenomenal defensive player. We know he can hit for power. He can hit for average. He can run. I mean, there the only flaw on his resume is where he's played his home games to date. Yeah, I you know I I can't pinpoint something that he's lacking in. He just does not strike me as the 300 million type player that people are making him out to be on the open market. I just don't want the eye test just does not tell me that Trevor story is that kind of player. I I just, maybe it's because he's in the national league West and I don't see him that often watching all these Mets games. You know, I I don't, I don't know. I could be off base. I don't know. You know, he, he doesn't have that spectacular variable that Lindor has. And you're right, because he plays for Colorado, a team that is nondescript and never in the postseason. So you don't see him. You, you might, you know, lose something when trying to make the ultimate determination of what kind of player he is. But you guys know, with the advanced stats, metrics, all there are no there are no secrets. Everybody knows exactly what they are getting. In Trevor's story, I, I I don't think that's going to work against him. And I, if you see me fist pumping in the background, Bruce, Thomas, that's because yeah, I say Nito's been on fire. The replace Mets strike again, and and <laughs> this is actually a good conversation. And again, I didn't get to before, but and, and Rob, I mean, you're watching the Mets games as closely as I am. Yeah. Is it out of the realm of possibility here that that James McCann is a Mets backup catcher? No. No, so. no, that's not happening. Or no, that's not outside the realm it's, of possibility. It's, listen, Nito's been, he's been a little hot lately, but you know, you still went out and spent, you know, $40 million on, on this kid McCann. And listen, I know he's not hitting as much as you wanted him to. He did have a big hit the other day, but he's been terrific defensively for them. Uh, and again, we have to be careful with the backup catcher, you know, falling in love with the backup. Once again, Nito's been a little hot, but sometimes these guys, the more you play them, the more they get exposed and, then you start seeing a deficiency. So well, I, I don't, and I, I don't and see I'm, that happening. It's a good point you brought up because right across the river, Bruce, I mean, how many people clamoring about how much better yes. Kyle Higashioka is than and Gary he's Sanchez. Done. And now all of a sudden he's two for his last 33. Yeah, and that crazy died down. Yeah. You know, you got to be careful with that. I'm not saying that Sanchez is, but I'm just saying you got to be careful anointing the backup so quickly. People fall in love with the backup quarterbacks, the backup goalie, the backup catches. They all fall in love with them until you start seeing them play more often than you realize why they were a backup. No, Bruce? <laughs> well, at, at this point, I think anybody not named Gary Sanchez is a better alternative a catcher if, you, if you're a Yankee fan. I mean, Sanchez, this isn't a John, Johnny-come-lately scenario. Sanchez has been struggling for years now, and you know he raised the bar so high because of how he took the league by storm coming in. And it was such an utter disappointment where his entire game just completely fell off the map that, you know, if you were a Yankee apologist, you couldn't stand the sight of the guy. 
And then Agashioka came in, and you know what? He was actually able to do something that is in the job description. When you're a catcher, it helps to be able to actually catch a baseball. Gary Sanchez wasn't doing that. And then, <laughs> lo and behold, he was showing some pop. You know, he had that history with Garrett Cole. They were high school teammates. Cole's numbers were, you know, that much better with Higashioka behind the plate. And lo and behold, there was, a you know, a temporary fix to that situation. But I don't think anybody in reality thought that they were catching lightning in a bottle again with a 30-year-old minor league journeyman type catcher as being a long-term solution. Right now, as far as their catching scenario is concerned, the Yankees are simply just trying to get by with acceptable play. That would be a quantum leap in the right direction when taking into account what Gary Sanchez has provided them the last two plus years at that spot. So here's the most important question I'm going to ask you. Have you gotten tired of jumping on with us and, and talking sports Never. Yet? No, I love this. <laughs> I wish I had a TV in the room that I'm that I'm doing this with you guys so I can keep up with whatever the heck you guys are watching. <laughs> with, all the, with giving the play-by-play. That's one thing you'll learn, whether it's the Rangers, the Mets, whoever. I mean, we're always getting, we're guys, always getting derailed. I, if I could fake it for seven years with Russo on high heat, I could do it for as long as you guys will have me here on Four Score. All right. Well, that that's uh, a perfect way to close out time to shine. We, we, we thank Bruce for, for coming on and, and jumping on with us again. And like I said, this is going to be a regular week occurrence as long as Bruce doesn't yeah. just keep getting tired. And I, mean, I think, I think we actually covered everything on, on his email list too. We yeah, pretty we much got, covered everything. We got to everything. I mean, I, I marked awesome things talking off as, points again. as we talk about it, I got my pen and I got Bruce's email printed out. And I mark things off that we talked about. You know, I mark See, it off. That, okay, look at we, this. You're keeping so. Rob regimented too, crossing <laughs> things off a list. I mean, we're 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 making improvements to this podcast just based on your face being on our computer, Bruce. I just I just wish you guys would mark those things off in red. Bring me back to my high school days. <laughs> and let me tell you, everybody, something. That's gonna do it for episode sixty, big number sixty of Four Score the podcast as well. Um, again, we, we had a lot of things to cover tonight, so we, we didn't get to any fan questions or, or fan voicemails. We didn't even reach out to people to get them, but you know, with, with there being a little hi, uh, football hiatus, which covers a lot of our talking points throughout the weeks, uh, that's a big chunk of time that we can devote to fan questions and, and fan voicemails. So we'll certainly get more on board with those as the weeks move forward here, as far as housekeeping and, and how to get in touch with us. If you want to send in a fan question via email, fourscore the podcast at gmail.com. Again, that's fourscore the podcast at gmail.com. You send us any topic, we'll get to it. And then we also got the fourscore voicemail hotline. That number to call is 917 426 5779. You can follow us on social media. My personal account is Andrew May underscore 21 on Twitter. You follow Rob on his personal account at Robbo G6, R O B B O G6. Follow us on Twitter. The podcast has its own Twitter handle now at Fourscore the Pod. Uh, so give us a follow. You could certainly DM us on Twitter if you want to send in fan questions that way. I mean, we're open to all mediums, all forms of communication. We're we're fully enthralled in the 2021, 2021 methods of, of talking to one another. So any method of choice, we'll, we'll certainly get to it. And that'll cap off for, for episode 60. I mean, does anyone have any closing remarks that, that I'm missing out on here? I think we covered a, covered everything we could possibly cover, I believe. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, hey, listen, you know, I know a lot of people depict this as one of the, uh, you know, slower times on the sports calendar, but I don't know. I live and die for my NFL Sundays, don't get me wrong. But, I mean, every night for the next two months, NBA, NHL playoffs with Major League Baseball sprinkled in there, this is one of the, just the, the greatest times of the year if you're a diehard sports junkie like we are, as far as we're from where I'm sitting. Yeah. Hundred percent. Well, like I said, I mean, it, the the football takes up a large portion of the conversation because that's like the peak of of our interests. But I mean, when it comes down to, I mean, Bruce is is along for the ride these past couple weeks, and and we're just getting to to really start to know Bruce, and it's been great. But Rob, I mean, as far as you and I are concerned, and this is dating back pre podcast days, going back years now. I mean, you could put us in a in a room and with no windows, boarded up, and and we could shoot the shit for like eighteen hours. So, I mean, there's no shortage of storylines to get to as far as nope. podcast material is concerned. Definitely not. I mean, we just we just keep going. So, uh, Bruce, you, you don't have a TV, so are you not aware of what's going on with the Yankees right now? Uh, I've seen the score. I, the, the last I saw it was 3-3, and I see that, thanks to you, that the Mets are up 4-3. So, uh, the Mets are up 4-3. The Yankees took a 5-3 lead now. Oh, there you go. Five, that's, that's about a, that's about a week's worth of offensive production for them. We're on our way. Yes, due to uh, Kyle Higashioka's uh, Higashioka's sidekick Gary Sanchez with an RBI double, and then another RBI double from Gio Urshela. To Gary Sanchez got an RBI double. What did all three outfielders crash into each other on a 150 uh, foot pop up? No, they actually all had to go to the bathroom at the same time, so there was nobody in the outfield to field the fly ball. That's what happened. They were playing with four infielders and nobody in the outfield. That's what happened. I would stand the reason. <laughs> all right. So thanks everybody for continuing to listen and support. Give us a follow on social media. Send in your fan questions. Send in your your fan voicemails. DM us on Twitter. All of the above, and and we're happy to interact with everyone. That'll do it for episode sixty. Sixty down, forty to go until our big uh, episode one hundred Palooza, where Rob and I are are thinking of some clever ways to take our show on the road, as we like to say. And, and we're, we're thinking about making 100 a special one. But 60 in the books. Thanks, everyone, for being along for the ride with all these episodes. For Rob Jufre and Bruce Shine, my name is Andrew May. Take care. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>